Yowza, 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 indeed. What's going on, everybody? It's your boy, Matt Kennedy, one half of the five films from podcast here. Wanted to take a second today before Todd and I get started on the episode to say thanks for listening. And to ask that if you've been enjoying the show, make sure you like, subscribe, and maybe even leave a five-star review on the podcast platform of your choice. Doing that's going to really help us to connect with more movie-loving listeners just like you. Also, we wanted to give y'all an update on some of the stuff we're working away on for Season 2. Got a lot of good episodes lined up real soon. For example, uh, Todd's currently editing our two-part season premiere on five films from... It's actually going to be ten films from the two-parter. We're going to be doing Brian De Palma. We'll also be gonna getting into some more idiosyncratic stuff with guys like Stuart Rosenberg and Larry Cohen, as well as you know real Hollywood legends like Robert Altman and fan favorites like John Landis and Tony Scott. Again, be sure to subscribe so you can be among the first to hear all of our newest five films from content as soon as it drops. Totally. Lastly, if you're still listening, <laughs> be sure to be on the lookout for our upcoming Patreon feed. We'll be offering all kinds of bonus episodes, things like double features, commentary tracks, etc. 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 And special things like five films from directors who have only made one film and five films from the 70s disaster movie genre. Absolutely. So yeah, a lot of things lined up, good things on the horizon for FFF. And yeah, that's all I got for you. Enjoy the show. With Mac Kennedy and Todd Edmondson. Today on Five Films from, we're talking about Alan J. Pakula. Right. Uh, or is it Pacula? I'm not actually. I uh, I heard uh, Ben Mankiewicz say Pacula. Yeah, because I think Dick Havitt said Pakula. Alan J. Pakula. Alan J. Pakula is the director of. Am I going too fast? So who knows. Yeah. Well, I take Cabot over Mankiewicz. Any day of the week, I think. Yeah, any day of the week. <laughs> uh, what are we talking about today? Uh, we're talking about five films from Pacula, and the first film is Clute. Seventy-one movie. It's the Jane Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland star in it. Uh, Jane Fonda, best actress Oscar. Yeah, really, she's great in that movie. Yeah, uh, it was the first of two best actress Oscars. She later wins for what is it? She later wins for the movie with Bruce Dern and John Voight, the Vietnam movie. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. What is that movie? Coming home. Coming home. Called. Yeah. So it's the first of her two Oscars, uh, and yeah, really sort of. I think right, uh, Papula was saying in a Dick Cavett interview, it was right when Jane Fonda was sort of becoming politically active and becoming like socially aware, and she had just left her first husband, so it was like a, a pretty a, like transitional period in her career and in her life. And she was kind of a pariah, too, in some circles where her Hanoi Jane... Did that happen yet, or was that after Or had this? that happened yet? I feel like that probably came after this, because Papula said this is when she was first becoming politically Oh, I got active. you, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, she got there anyway. Yeah. You know, that's the thing about a, a later movie we're going to talk about called Rollover, which has uh, mm-hmm. Jane Fonda in it too. But anyway, that's a little later. I was thinking Jane is like maybe the like patron saint of this podcast at this point. She showed up and <laughs> she's been in every episode. I she, she wasn't in the Richie episode, but she's been in the Ted one and she's in this one twice. Yeah, and she's going to be in the the next one. So she's a. Uh, 
I want to start making a tally of all the people who like we touch on and who we touch on the most. But I yeah. think Jane is in the lead right now. She's in the lead right yeah. now, for sure. She's batting three thirty-three. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah. Um, uh, another aside from this movie is um, we talk about how a lot of these movies um, that are from Paramount are, are Gulf and Western Company. Right. Know, opening yeah. credits. Um, which didn't last, it lasted long enough. Through the 70s, they put out a lot of great movies. And then this one is funny because it's Warner Brothers, a Kinney National Company. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Because, yeah, you always think of, like, Robert Evans' era Paramount as the Gulf and Western Company. Right, yeah. right. But the uh, Kinney National Company, I, I, I'm sorry to say I did not look this up and find out why, but it obviously wasn't around for very long. And his Kinney was like the shoe company. Let's check this out. Let's, we, let's check this out. Let's read a little bit. I, I, it just hit me right away. In fact, it was distracting. I had to uh, stay with the stay with the credits. Um, Gordon Willis again, cinematography. I noticed on Michael Chapman was camera op, who Michael Chapman also became quite the cinematographer uh, in his own right. And again, the music is by Michael Small, who's uh, just a wonderful... Um, if you go to Michael Small... Uh, music.com he talks about how uh how um what did we say pacula pacula is who we're talking about pacula, right now yeah, or is it pacula. Pacula. yeah, yeah well, say we pacula. have conflicting sources <laughs> i believe oh yeah how pa- how michael small said that pacula really taught him how to i write. call him alan alan there you go <laughs> alan taught him how to <laughs> how to uh how to write for the for the characters and for the whole arc of the film rather than um, the moments. He, he yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, and he uses Michael Small in a lot of these movies. A like, lot I of think, these movies. I'm not sure if it's all of them, but at least three of them. We'll, we'll have to take note as we go along. But yeah, Michael Small is definitely a recurring collaborator of uh, Pacula's of Allen's. But about the Kinney International thing, there's a that era in the 70s and into the 80s, you see a lot of sometimes strange logos, and I'm going off into a tangent here, but have you ever seen the one where it's Warner Brothers Seven Arts? Yes. Well, yeah, like, what's that one all about? Yes. I don't know, but, I don't like know, but I remember the cartoons yeah. were also Warner Brothers. Yeah, and it's like, uh, it's like WB, and then it, like, merges in with a seven. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. I have that in, I don't remember what I saw it in, but it's just another, like, brief... Uh, credits that we saw. For well, a I, I worked for a music publisher f- um, for uh, I don't know freelancing full time for almost forty years, and we were owned by I think we were owned by nine different people hmm. before the the last owner uh, gutted it so bad that everybody got canned. Everybody but about five people got canned. Uh, Coffee spill. <laughs> Hold the uh, yeah the corporate. Um, the corporate juggling of assets where bankers really kind of got into the scene and they said, these are assets that are just, they just make money mm-hmm. on their own magically. Well, yeah. it's not, ma- I mean, movies are, music, yeah, music and movies are magical, but they don't just happen. You know? Right. Uh, They're the result of like, you know, effort <laughs> yeah yeah that, yeah you know? my sister i was fond of saying you know they say shit happens shit doesn't just happen you have to make shit happen <laughs> right yeah <laughs> and so i i just love that i just love to see that uh the 70s was when that kind of really seemed to have gotten started the, yeah it's, a lot of the logos are a great great way to see that happening in, yeah. in real time in yeah. these movies um, but yeah, this movie, Clute, it's the first of the Paranoia trilogy that Pakula made. It's sort of a loose trilogy, but that's what he called it. Um, you know, includes this movie and the next two we're talking about. Uh, the plot of this movie, basically, uh, what, what, 
give you want to give a little summary of the plot. Basically, real quick, there's a there, there's a uh, there's a, a, mari- a married man in Podunk somewhere. Yeah, um, what is it called? Um, Tuscarora, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, yeah, mm-hmm. Tuscarora, and um, the, this man disappears in New York, and um, the family and the family attorney wants to hire Donald Sutherland, who was this guy's best friend, who, and as a um, ex-cop private investigator type who's going to go and try and to New York and try and find him. Uh, and Jane Fonda was one of uh, was one of the prostitutes he visited. Tom Gruneman's been missing for half a year. And all the FBI has to offer is a, a report that must bore even you. And there are thousands of honest, decent men who simply disappear every year. Neither Mrs. Gruneman nor I are willing to just dismiss this case. And therefore, we feel entitled to investigate on our own. You're entitled. Uh, there are some very competent... Uh, John Clute offered us his services, and we've accepted. Clute knew Tom. And he has a great many ideas about the case. Have you ever done any missing persons work before? No. Have you spent any time in the city? No. Well, speaking frankly... You're wondering why we thought of him. Frankly. He's interested. And he cares. It's funny, we were talking about um, maintaining a status quo. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, people are always trying to hang on to the image. Yeah. And so this was the, the wife is like, that's, he would never do that, you know. And uh, I don't believe he, uh, you know, would yeah, ever do that. Yeah. But he did. And, um, yeah, it's basically a really paranoid um, movie. Eventually she can't sleep because she feels like people are watching her following her, um, and Donald Sutherland has to get kind of next to her. He doesn't have anything really to go on other than her, and she's very... Um, being a prostitute, what did I write here? Is that I said, you know, it's... Donald Sutherland's real straight-laced, and she can't control him through sex like she does all right. her other guys, and she tries to kind of do that, and, and um, but this is really about... This is really about, uh, you know, a very suspenseful um, potential murder story. And that's the relationship that grows between the two of them, I think, because she's unable to sort of kind of get the drop on him through her, her sex work, uh, is sort of like why she sort of ends up hung up on him, right? And you yeah, hear things right. like that through the therapy scenes that she had. Well, there's this man that I met, this detective... I don't know exactly what is happening or what he wants out of me or anything like that, but uh, he, he took care of me. Did you feel threatened by it? Well, I don't know. When you're used to being lonely and you somebody comes in and moves that around, it's sort of scary, I guess. According to this Dick Cavett interview with Alan, Alan Pacula, Pacula. Pacula. With Alan, <laughs> according to this interview, like all those scenes were improvised, and he's not a guy who uses a lot of improvisation in his movies. He said that that, that you, is the, uniquely the only thing in this movie that's improvised. He says that there's like hours and hours worth of just footage of Jane Fonda talking to this um, therapist about like her life as uh, uh, Bree, the character in this movie, and her sort of relationship with sex work and how 
she has this really complicated relationship to it, right? Like, it's something that she feels scared by um, because of, obviously, like, her friends have died in it before. She has this missing, she has a friend who died and, and uh, is worried about that. But she also finds it really empowering because it's the one way she's able to sort of assert herself on men and on the world. Because, yeah, yeah, where she feels in control right. of her life. For an hour, I'm the best actress in the world and the best fuck in the world. And why'd you say you're the best actress in the world? At that oh, time. because it's an act. That's what's nice about it. You don't have to feel anything. You don't have to care about anything. You don't have to like anybody. You just, uh, you just lead them by the ring in their nose in the direction that they think they want to go in. And you get a lot of money out of them in as short a period of time as possible. And, uh, and you control it, and you call the shots, and I always feel just great afterwards. And you enjoyed it? No. Why not? You said there's nothing wrong with it. Why not, you said? Well, there's a difference. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Uh, morally, I didn't enjoy it physically. I, I came to enjoy it because it made me feel good. It made me feel like I wasn't alone. It made me feel, uh... that I had some control over myself, that I had some control over my life, that I, uh... that I could determine things for myself. She tries to be an actress or a model, and she's not very successful. Uh, she, uh, but here she's able to just do... She talks about in the recording, so she's able to make men feel whatever she thinks they want to feel right? yeah, or yeah, something like that. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff uh, like tape recordings of her phone, you know, because I think Donald Sutherland is listening to her phone calls in the beginning and sending them back to that guy. Uh, right. Right. In Pennsylvania. And the guy in Pennsylvania, the attorney, um, this is another story where um, there's occasionally stories where you, the audience know who did it. Mm. And so the suspense is watching the other people, the other characters in the put story who don't know it. Yeah, and put it all together. Um, and it's a bad guy. A great, creepy bad it, guy. It lets you know pretty early on it clues you in just because Sutherland mm -hmm. gives him the tapes. And there's like a scene of him just sitting in an office, a great Alan Pakula, like office building with a bunch of rectangular windows behind him. Yeah, yeah, like and a imposing. high sky. Yeah. yeah. And he's, you know, quite, from the way it's filmed, it's like he's very, like, uh, uh, voyeuristic in his listening to these tapes. He's not just very, trying to get information. Right, so right. That sort of clues you in that he's got another interest in this case, not just finding this guy. Right. Um, it's it's wonderfully tense, and uh, and it sucks you right in, because you just, you're just waiting for the shoe to drop, you know, and, and that's what Bree's character, Jane Fonda's character, she spends her whole life like that now. I yeah. mean, every day of her life is just always something over her shoulder. And sort of the Pecula's films is able to create, you know, it's the first of many times we see this sort of tense someone is watching kind of thing in, in Pecula's movies. He does this recurring themes that you see, like ringing phones. Every single one of his movies, you're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. he turns around at a ringing phone. Or like these big imposing office buildings that are just kind of like looking at them is somehow overwhelming in a weird way and at the office that this character peter cable the villain in this movie is mm -hmm. sitting in reminds me almost of like the monolithic uh 
podium that they're sitting at in the parallax view of the three in the beginning. Yeah, it's yeah, kind of, yeah. It's, it's this, like power it's incarnate, right? Power and, and a certain kind of opulence that you would so normally associate power with money. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of edge of... Yeah, and and everything's really clean and dark, and there's just nothing. Gordon Willis just, is the cinematographer. Yeah, it's just just a little tape recorder in this guy listening to it. It's yeah, it's really creepy. Yeah, and the the shadows too, um, from the darkness and the shadows. All these movies too. I think most of them are photographed by Gordon Willis. Is I think definitely, so. Yeah. this one is definitely all the President's Men. Definitely Parallax View. You know, he's the they they called him the master of darkness, right? He also <laughs> shot a bunch of Coppola movies. He shot both Godfather one and two and the conversation. I know he worked with Woody Allen a lot too. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, that's I the conversation I said, which brings me back to another thing about this movie is all the like analog tapes and stuff. And yeah. Blowout is the same way. I love right. that kind of like era of thriller where everything was like analog tapes and like the yeah, technology yeah, yeah. and people writing on papers and stuff like that yeah it's yeah it's really a good good stuff yeah the conversation it's funny you should bring that up because that's about eavesdropping and that right. it's the same exact technology I'm pretty sure it's the same cinematographer right a, a Willis I know Willis yeah. worked with Coppola a lot I love that t- miniature tape recorder because when I was a kid I would watch Mission Impossible the DVD oh, show oh sure and at the beginning of every episode was uh, uh, Phelps Jim Good morning, Jim. You know, and it was a little tape recorder like that, stashed somewhere. And it would explode. Yeah, and it would, it would, yeah, yeah, it would catch on fire. (laughs) It would burn up the tape at the end of it. That's great. Says, yeah, I'm sure the CIA had something to say about (laughs) that show. (laughs) Who was it? Uh, um, Peter Graves said, you know, he said we were very successful, but then we ran out of South American dictators. (laughs) uh, You know, so we had to start and, and Iron Curtain. Stuff. But anyway, getting back to Clued, off the uh, off the topic, some uh, interesting people. I noticed a piano player, a co-writer from All That Jazz, oh, yeah. was a director who was uh, who was um, the 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 little sidelight about this movie um, where the Brie character is going on these auditions. It's just highly competitive and very dismissive. Like there, everybody is. Um, it makes a painful point that. The people who are in charge of auditioning you are looking for a certain thing, mm-hmm. and that's it. it. It almost reminds me of Smile in that way. Just yeah, the sort yeah. of like, these are the exact things. Like, this guy walks past Jane Fonda and just says, doesn't say to her, doesn't even really look at her, says to the other guy he's standing with, C minus. C minus. And then just keeps walking <laughs> along. It's so grim. Jesus. It's yeah. so grim. He keeps you know, walking really, along, yeah. It's really just. It doesn't build up your confidence. Which is like, and then you, you contrast that to the scenes where she's in talking to her customers, or John's, like the one old guy who she like tells stories to, and it's like this weird sort of like almost old-fashioned eroticism where I don't think they have sex or anything, but she just like totally makes his day by like telling this and telling these body stories. story, yeah, yeah. yeah. His eyes were burning into me. was helpless. He didn't even have to say anything. And I knew. I knew that somehow. You know, I've never liked young men. And I knew that that you would awaken something in me. That no young man had ever awakened. 
was... He was so wise. He taught me so many things. With his hands. With his mind. I felt so beautiful. And you can see, like, how empowered she feels by being able to do that. And she actually likes him. Yeah. Oh, her, her, you know, his wife died in seven years yeah, and ago, she, and, you know, and she's he's a regular customer. And, and she yeah, ends up, so. like, trying to look to him later on as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. She goes to him for help. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And who does, when she does go to look for him, not too much of a spoiler, she does run into Edith Bunker, his secretary. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I That's, love Gene Stapleton. Gene Stapleton shows up for a moment. Yeah, that made me laugh just seeing her. Like Olive Oil's aunt or something <laughs> with that voice. It's awesome. Yeah, and uh, and our our man Roy Scheider I was is just gonna um, say how are we gonna fit Roy? Yeah, in well, this? Roy's yeah. a breeze, sort of pimp girlfriend that she has gotten away from. She had a big. She talks in a couple of times about how she had a Park Avenue apartment at one point, and she's doing really well. And it doesn't really explain why that didn't. She wasn't able to maintain that, but she goes back to Roy Scheider to um, to uh, talk to him. And you know, Donald Sutherland. Um, and Roy Scheider, a lot of it, a lot of tension there because mm-hmm. Sutherland's just trying to get to the truth, but he also is romantically involved with Jane Fonda, and so was Roy Scheider. And Roy has this kind of pimp thing where he's just like he's always in control, and right. he's in control of her even when he's not. Somehow, I uh, I was just finishing up some work, marking up a few photographs. I used to be a photographer, Rita. Before I get into publishing. He knows you're a pimp, Frankie. He knows you were my pimp. Excuse me. Bree, why don't you wait outside? Always respected, Bree. I'd like to make something clear. I just got a couple of questions. I want to make something clear. You know, uh, I don't go after a girl. Girl comes to me. Her choice, right? Looking for a man, Tom Grunneman. Miss Daniels tells me that the date that beat her up two years ago might have been that man and that you sent her on that date. Two years ago? Sorry. I understand you use narcotics. Maybe I could have someone come over and look at your arms. You know, I may stand better with the cops than you do. Why don't you sit down and relax? There's a point in the movie where, like, Jane is uh, kind of in a crossroads where she has to choose between, like, she knows she's vulnerable and she knows that she can either go to Clute for protection or go to Roy Scheider for protection. Clute right. is the Sutherland character. And it seems like she wanted, she, for a time at least, felt more free um, with Scheider. That's why that's where she she went with it. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Ultimately, you could stick with the, the evil you know. The evil you thing, know, yeah. right? Because uh, and you see, like maybe why it was bad for her later. Because there's a scene where she's in the club, clearly just fucked up, and like like clearly on some kind of drug or like really hammered or something. Yeah, yeah. And she's like laying on uh, Frank for a Scheider's shoulder, and just like you can see that this situation is clearly like. She left for a reason, right? Like, she's not yeah, happy here. Right. She just feels forced into it by the circumstances she's in. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh... And the sort of, like, the fact that she was unable to sort of get a bead on John Clue, Donald Sutherland, that 
bucking against that led her back into the arms of exactly the <laughs> yeah exactly right yeah she's she's in denial in from several angles about how what lack of control she really does have in, in over terms her of her you know material safety but also her emotional sort of attachments yeah yeah right, at the yeah, same time yeah her whole well-being is built on this lie that she's in control well um you know the the like I said, you already know who the who the bad guy is by the middle of the movie. Yeah, but, pretty early. Um, they pretty they early. tip your hand, yeah. But um, you just don't know how bad he is. And you him. also don't know exactly why he's doing what he's doing or how it, how it figures into this missing guy, Tom, in the beginning. And that's not really revealed until the very end, but it is a great scene. Where, yeah, with yeah. With this uh, great scene of Jane Fonda's acting, uh, um, when she's kind of finally confronting the bad guy who's... Name I think is Charles Coffey or Kioffy, C I O F F I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Charles Coffey. Uh, and there's the two of them just give like really harrowing performances. Just the fe- the fear that she's going through, and yeah. also just him kind of like explaining and playing this tape, that happened. playing yeah. this tape where he he has done something kind of terrible, and he's really just he's just pure evil. Do you believe me? Yes. We can talk. Well, it's just an ordinary matter. I'm a very well-off man. I have a position to respect. And I would feel personally very uncomfortable to be connected with a certain kind of woman. I'm sure you understand what I mean. My name is Peter Cable. I work for the Toll American Corporation, which is situated in Pennsylvania and in New York. Obviously, I would not be telling you these things if my intentions weren't honorable. Oh. You look familiar to me. In what way? I don't know. Your face looks familiar to me. I guess I have a confession to make. We did meet before, about two years ago. And I often wondered whatever happened to Harlan Page. And here you are. Yeah, I remember. Listen, I... I've got to get out of here. I mean, I can't... I, I remember you. I remember you. Well, what do you you remember? beat me up. That's what you did. His, like, very kind of matter-of-fact and, like, plainly materialist motives for it all, and this just thing of, like, someone in power not wanting to... Just pretty much thinking, you know, like, using everyone else as, like, a manipulation tool. Yeah, yeah, It was all... I'm not going to say too much about the specifics, but it was all kind of a boardroom play for this guy. Yeah, it resulted yeah. in murders and, and all kinds of things. Yeah, everything was about maintaining a, the status quo his position and not being on, found out. with uh, His position at some, like, picayune fucking chemical company in Pennsylvania. So yeah, it yeah. doesn't matter if it's that or if it's, like, we go two movies from now, it's the White House. It's the, right, or a rollover, which is all about just giant Wall Street bank. Different uh, levels of power, but it's all the same kind of, like, just dictators and, and sort of like bullies, no matter no matter what the trappings of it are. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
For sure. Well, cool. Um, it's a great movie. No question about it. What is the well, one thing I noticed? The bad guy. One the one thing he said. Uh, again, it's rationality uh, and and plausible deniability. He says, uh, "I've done terrible things. I've killed three people." But yet I don't consider myself a terrible man. No more than than others. Is probably true. Probably in, true. In the, yeah, the setting yeah. he exists in. Sure. It's what we don't want to believe, but yeah. he's just like is evil. It's fucking yeah. It's a great thing about these '70s movies, like pretty much across the board. I know this isn't technically a '70s movie podcast, but we do focus on the '70s a lot. Right. It seems like there's this idea of like complicity on everyone in terms of like <laughs> it just there's just no and you'll see it in these later movies as well where it's just yeah there are certain people committing the evil deeds but they're just kind of like carrying out the same thought processes and emotional processes that everyone goes through it, it, right, in a right. way and they're on a they're a cog in a kind of a twisted Profit machine, right? Yeah, yeah the system that's that's corrupt. Pro- and again, he's propping himself up. He's trying to maintain status. It's all sort of like false. Yeah, all exactly. Like, he resorts to like murder and, and stuff. All... And again, if you murder, it's like a lot of uh, a lot of classic films. A lot of guys murder somebody, and then they have to murder a bunch of other yeah, people order, after yeah, that in order to keep in up order with to it. keep up the pretense. Yeah. And this and movie's again, not even about that guy. It's that's terrible. right. It's about like the people on the other end of it more more than right, anything. Right. Right. Yeah, Jane Fonda was um, wonderful, and she's ultimately a victim of her own, uh, of herself. But she's also a victim of her of the of her Johns. You know, the that's it's like rolling the dice. I mean, when you're a prostitute, you're. I, I just saw a funny joke about a um, guy who picks up a hitchhiker, and they're making small talk, and the hitchhiker says, "You know." Um, I hope you're not afraid that I'm a serial killer, and the driver says. No, um, I mean, really, the odds of um, two serial killers who don't know each other being in the same car are astronomical. That's pretty lucky, yeah. <laughs> but again, it's somebody, somebody you know who kills you, whether they know you personally or you're, you're, you're a friend of a friend. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, I mean, she's, um, she's, yeah. I think she's like, her character, Brie, I think is like, ultimately a pretty rational and responsible character in that like the situation she is in she's handling in the smartest possible way it just shows that she's in a situation where there's really no way to win i think think that's kind of like that's a great way to say i think that's kind of how because i don't really think she's a victim of herself like i think she's like a pretty capable person well that's true but uh, yeah i mean she she's a victim of like the system around her i guess yeah yeah it's always about how the corrupt the system is how many and i guess the the choices she's forced to make right by existing right right. so in that way she's a victim of herself well she keeps her emotional strength by lying to herself but there it it's required. Who doesn't? Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's survival it's, it's, at that point. The great George Costanza thing when the guy tells him, George, I'm living a lie. I just want I'm living like 20. <laughs> My whole life is a lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, but that's a wonderful I want to say movie. about this movie, um, and you might, but some of you might also want to say, but the last thing I took a note on specifically, it's what Roger Ebert said in his original review of this movie, and it's I didn't know Ebert said it until after the fact, but it also struck me is this movie should be called Brie. Right, <laughs> it, it's not really about Clute. <laughs> no, it, it, 
it's almost like a Hollywood thing where it's like, okay, it needs to be about the cops. The only people are going to see it. Nobody's going to want to see this prostitute movie. Clute is, uh, the character is, is he's, he's Superman, and he's the one who, he's the only one who just wants to get to the truth. The, thing, the truth is going to kill everybody else. It's either going to kill the bad guy or it's going to kill Bree. And he doesn't seem to be afraid of that. He's the wedge. He's the, uh, he's the all, what, what's the word I'm looking for? He, he's, so he's, he's the pure white light. Right, he of, exists outside of the system outside we've of been the talking system. about. That's he's right. sort of like an, yeah. uh, a free agent. He's what, he's, what, um, he's, he's what the law is supposed to be in a corrupt and of course, he's not a cop. So he's pointedly not a cop. That's yeah, right. he's a private eye. They make right. a whole point about him right. not being a cop. Yeah, I'm not Which, a cop. You know, yeah, yeah. You know. There you go. There you go. It's a wonderful movie, though. It's good, absolutely good film, great. Yeah. Um, all right, let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Cool. Kennedy and Todd Edmondson. Next movie up um, is going to be The Parallax View, which is from 1974. It's the second of Alan's Paranoia trilogy, <laughs> and it's the first appearance of somebody who's going to become another fan favorite, I'm sure, Warren Beatty. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This movie, uh, let's see, I was just, we were just talking about this off mic beforehand, is we were trying to find the box office information for this movie, and it's, it's not like something that I normally even think to look up, but I had heard on another podcast about this, and it only, the only, uh, uh, total gross is like $2,942, it says. <laughs> What, it doesn't even sound possible. It doesn't sound like a real number. No, it's it like a joke. And you look at it, and you look a little closer, and that was from a 2009 re-release in France. It would grossed that much. And as far as its original box office, 1974, there's just no... It says N.A. Domestic International N.A. There's no information on it. It's Do you know really why that strange. could be? I mean, it's, a, it's a paramount picture. It's a, uh, you know, got movie stars in it. It's a well-known movie. Why... How's that? It's very strange. It's just yeah, it's just bizarre. Yeah, bizarre. Uh, well, this movie um, is is you know clearly based on the JFK uh, assassination. The entire um, story of that. Um, right. So it starts out in Seattle, where uh, Warren Beatty and Paul Prentice are there. Uh, Paul Prentice is like a news reporter, uh, and Warren Beatty is trying to get in on. Get into this he's campaign a, he's event. He's a print reporter, print reporter, small paper. Kind yeah. of a fuck up too. Like, yeah. I think he's kind of like you know they they kind of don't want to because he's not allowed in there. His, right? Yeah, but his yeah. history precedes himself yeah. for sure. Uh, and then they're there, and there's a senator speaking there, and the senator's campaign manager is William Daniels, and he's speaking as well. We have Senator Carroll with us today to celebrate Independence Day, and he is an independent politician. In fact, so independent that some say they don't know which party he does belong to. 
Austin Tucker. Austin is with us today as the political advisor to Senator Carroll. Austin, we hear, or people say, that there is some possibility that you want to get the nomination for Senator Carroll next year. Oh, well, I think we're jumping the gun there, Ms. Carter. We also hear... He's not running for any other office. He's concentrating on the one he has now. Uh, but the senator is killed, right? Like, right. immediately, right off the bat, this guy, Senator Carroll, Charles Carroll, gets killed. The, the Kennedy-esque figure. And then what happens after that? Um, With the two guys. There, yeah, they're... Um, there, there's a busboy that runs, right, and he's assumed dies. to be the uh, he's assumed to be the shooter. Secret Service or whoever chases him up onto the it's roof the, of the Space yeah. Needle, he rolls off, and you know that's it. He, that's it for that guy. Yeah. But it's very clear during during from from our vantage point of the audience, it's very clear that there are two busboys involved, mm -hmm. and um, the one who actually fired the shot was not seen. Was he not him. Right. Without right. without anything. So uh, it makes you you get sort of a you get sort of a suicide bomber kind of a thing out of the other guy, and mm -hmm. we we were talking about um, having seen the movie several times. We're trying to figure out where he, what that guy's history would be. The guy who falls off of the space needle was he a good guy or a bad guy, or was he trying to? Uh, he, he must have been recruited through the same channels that. See, we're kind of getting ahead of the movie, but. Right. Uh, through the same channels that Beatty ends up getting recruited through, but it seems that he way, couldn't have not known sure. that his role was to be the fall guy, much like the end of the movie, right? right? Like it has to have been somebody else who was there under a different pretense, right? Even Lee Harvey Oswald said, "I'm just a bad right, team. yeah." Once he, yeah, exactly. Like you he, know, he couldn't have like. We just don't know. I mean, yeah. basically, it happened so fast uh, that you're just like, yeah, you know, it just takes your breath away. Where. Um, Again. And really, before we even have a chance to think about it, the movie cuts away to a, a looks like a scent committee, sort of a Warren Commission type thing. Mm -hmm. And it's framed in this dark room with just a sort of very kind of imposing, like, wooden podium. And mm -hmm. seven, seven guys seven sitting heads on there. Top of it. Yeah, and the one guy in the middle is giving the speech. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been invited here today for the official announcement of the inquiry into the death of Senator Charles Carroll. Now, this is an announcement, not a press conference. Therefore, there will be no questions. After nearly four months of investigation, followed by nine weeks of hearings, it is the conclusion of this committee that Senator Carroll was assassinated by Thomas Richard Linder. It is our further conclusion that he acted entirely alone, motivated by a misguided sense of patriotism and a psychotic desire for public recognition. The committee wishes to emphasize that there is no evidence of any wider conspiracy. No evidence whatsoever. Now, it's our hope that this will put an end to the kind of irresponsible and exploitive speculation conducted by the press in recent months. There will yeah. be no questions. There will be no questions, and that's Great. it, you yeah. know? Uh, then it's what three years later immediately. Yeah, immediately three yeah it, years cuts, later. it cuts to uh, it cuts to three years later, and um, Warren Beatty works for Hume Cronin, the wonderful Hume Cronin, Very at this Canadian little actor. little paper, you know, Oregon or, or Seattle, I guess. Uh, Oregon. Remember William Daniels? You're a third-rate journalist from Oregon or wherever the hell you're from. Yeah, yeah. He's so great. So Warren Beatty um, is is. Um, it's trying to write a, a drug, you know, drug story about the police, and he uh, he, he gets involved in the, yeah, gets involved, and it goes into his talks his way into his neighbor's 
house, my parrot's on your porch, and uh, police bust, bust in right after that. And then they bust him for really no reason other than just being... Loitering, I guess. Plus I he's, a, he's just in there. He's a thorn in their side. He's writing, you know, this series about about drugs and in the city and whatever. And so Hume Cronin is always trying to save his paper, you know, the grief of, uh, he said, I gave you a shot. You, he's kind of like Fletch. Yeah, he <laughs> cured your like drinking. Yeah. Cured your, you cured your drinking, but you got to stay out of the story. You can't be part of the story all the time. And um, so Paul Apprentice re- revisits him. Very, very briefly. To very give briefly. She's, um, she says someone's trying to kill her. She's extremely distraught. A really good scene. She's a very unsung actress. And um, Mary, she, she was Benjamin, married right? Richard yeah. Benjamin, yeah. Uh, did mostly TV, as far as, far as I remember. But anyway, Catch 22. Uh, Catch 22, right. These people were killed. And whoever killed them is going to try to kill me. Austin Tucker thinks so, too. Austin thinks that maybe we all saw something up there. Yeah, well, we did see something up there, didn't we? No, I mean something else. Well, what do you mean by something else? Does he ever indicate what he means by that? Has he ever indicated to you that he saw anything other than what was in the commission report? No. Nothing. No. Did you see anything up there? No. Well, neither did I. And believe me, I looked. We all looked. You mean if you didn't see it, it's not there. And I didn't say that. She ends up dead. Just literally like the next scene. It's a, it's a very like good cut. It's a great use of editing. Yeah. It's, it's her to- talking to Warren Biddy about how scared she is, that she's going to be killed because all these other people have been killed. And it's the two of them like standing by a window. It's like a, a sort of very kind of passive image almost. And just from that cuts to a close up of her dead in like a in the morgue. Yeah, morgue. exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it's really it's a, like, a shit. powerful little bit of editing there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the gist of the story is that Warren Beatty starts to craft a plan. Well, he got, he's got to get a fake identity from your, yeah, from your boy. From <laughs> Kenneth Mars. That's right. Uh, on a toy, on a, on a little kid's train ride <laughs> that he's on. Yeah. Warren Beatty, Warren Beatty is, yeah, it's calling. Got to go undercover as a, he's got like two fake identities so that in case yeah. he's un- uncovered, he can say, oh, well, I changed my name because that guy was a sex offender or yeah, something. Yeah, like, exactly. A exactly. weenie wagger. I tell you what let's do. Let's make him a weenie wagger. Weenie wagger? Yeah, weenie wagger. Anybody be ashamed of that? Besides, you look a little bit like a flasher. Yeah, he has a, he has an idea of how he's going to do it, and he's going to try and find basically William Daniels' character, who is the political. What I say, the, uh, uh, like the campaign, the cons- campaign consultant, mm-hmm. uh, and stuff. And he was working with Prentice before she died. She said that like me and Austin Tucker, this character, right, right, are, right. are trying to get to the bottom of stuff. Yeah, so he, uh, he he's on a quest to find. Uh, to find William Daniels, who knows probably more, you know, than he wants to say. Like anybody in this situation, he knows just full well all these other people have been killed, and he knows yeah, how he, he's on the run is. too. This campaign exactly. manager, yeah, because exactly. he knows what's going on. So, um, so, so Warren Beatty ends up in uh, what is that? Small of uh, one of the. Small logging town, Small somewhere town by the where dam. someone had pre- one of the other witnesses to the first assassination had drowned had in a dam, drowned. fishing yeah. in a dam, and that's also where Austin Tucker, the Daniels character, was supposed to have been. So he's right. going there to meet with Austin Tucker, and instead of Austin Tucker, he runs into this sheriff who initially seems really helpful. He's, he's yeah, asking yeah. for information about this dam and the dead guy, 
and uh, sort of the sheriff takes Warren Beatty out to the the dam and sort of looking for information, uh, gives him a sandwich, and Warren Beatty has a really funny expression where he's like, Yeah, I brought you some lunch. You are racist with me. Look at that. Yeah, it's a <laughs> yeah, really yeah. funny moment, but about, again, very stark, very quickly, from like this sheriff giving Warren Beatty a sandwich, he takes out a gun, and you see, uh-oh. So, yeah. Uh, this guy's actually a bad guy. Yeah. I'm going to shoot him and the, the dam's going to open and, and they're going to save you ground. It'll be just like what happened to the last guy. Everybody else. Yeah, and you can see yeah. that click in, in Warren's yeah. head. Joe, in fact, uh, Joe. In fact, Kenneth Mars, when they're setting up this uh, fake ID, Kenneth Mars, he asked Kenneth Mars about how you can fake a heart attack. Mm -hmm. um, and you do that, yeah. Pulmonary embolism pill. Yeah, exactly. And this, this it starts cascading... Uh, into a thing where he's, you know, he's getting closer. He finds out it, about... It becomes the... Smokey and the Bandit for about two and a half <laughs> minutes. Yeah. So like it's got like jangly country banjos and he's got a cowboy hat and he's in a car doing fucking you know jumps and stuff yeah it, yeah and it, a, in a stolen police car it really turns into a hell Nita movie for a second <laughs> but at, at one point he you know this whole part with the sheriff and the car chase leads him to find a briefcase with some information in it and yeah, that's basically which, the which next points thing. to the parallax corporation right where he's got to uh, take a test of some yeah what about some of these questions on this test doesn't this test They're freak you out scary. yeah i know and i sh let's i'm gonna pull up for a second you pull up that test because i want to i want to talk about a warren Beatty again calling in his chips he's got a friend who's a anthony zerbe yeah zerbe is a uh, zerbe is a Apparently a behavioral research guy. He's playing pong with a chimpanzee when you, when you meet him, which is really great in this laboratory. And uh, this guy comes in, Ernie, calls him, hey, Ernie. And uh, he's looking over this test going. Uh, he seems to be directing it toward trying to pull out uh, anger, repression, frustration, stuff like that. You think it could pick up potentially homicidal characteristics? You mean a killer? Yeah, sure. Well, would you be willing to sit down with me and go through that test and uh, tell me what answers would come from a highly violent personality? Yeah, I'd be willing. But probably wouldn't do much good. Stuff pretty sophisticated. It's a lot different than my stuff. It's not any better, but uh, be difficult. So. He said, but hey, why don't we give it to Ernie? Let's have, yeah. Let's have Ernie take the test because Ernie, what did Ernie kill both his grandparents? Right, something, yeah, he <laughs> something did like really some horrible. super crazy crime. Yeah, and he's or... just got this this aura and this look on his face like, I killed somebody right, like, I don't care. Like, know? he looks like the way you would think a super crazy killer would look at him. Exactly. Like, it's, very, it's, just, it's almost stereotypical, but since it's for it's like economical too yeah this is not a real not a character who appears for more than one second but it gets all everything you need to know across. so it's perfect because uh because as he takes the test at parallax which is an incredible and i've oh got a couple gosh. of these questions pulled up real quick yeah. um that i found 
Uh, and so this is the personality inventory designed to draw out aggressive and, and like psych murderous psychotic people. Some of the questions are, I like high places. I like romantic stories better than adventure stories. I'm at my best in large groups. I'm often frightened when I wake up in the middle of the night. <laughs> the person whom I admired most as a child was a woman. <laughs> yeah. Just... And that's like five of the 40-something questions. It's just the first that I saw. It's, it's just, it's just, it's just it's jangly, yeah, stuff, like, like uh, I'm, I'm, I'm mostly happy, you know, and then just th three questions later, I'm mostly angry. Right, yeah. yeah. It just like, keeps, keeps like yanking you back and forth. I'm trying to um, find that thing. Do you remember that app I showed you where it was like a bunch of questions that looked like they were from the parallax test? <laughs> I don't I don't have What it was that? I forgot. Shoot, I don't remember. I wish I had it in front of me. Jeez. Um, well so he he Warren Beatty is is uh invited to go to visit the parallax based on these test based results. Based on these yeah. test results, which are really from Ernie, who is a homicidal killer. Um so he's perfect. He's he's uh he's got this dingy little uh, hot plate apartment and this guy shows up and talks about how you know how perfect he is uh and they and then they set him up in a job but he has to come to the um uh, again a big giant imposing uh all glass the dark monolithic glass tower, monolithic yeah. and it seems to be like in the middle of kind of i kind think it's of, los angeles is yeah i think it's los angeles but it seems it's still got kind of a far away kind of it just somehow he makes it feel like it's just this whole other world. I mean, so it's not where Joe's normally from, right? So exactly, yeah. And then yeah. Joe has to sit in this big, uh, comfy leather chair and hold all five fingertips on the on the white squares. And they show this film montage that it's unbelievable. Pretty probably what p most people will remember this movie for. I think, exactly. Um, how can you describe this montage? It's just like it's it's it starts it's sort of like an it's sort of like an American beer commercial or something. There we go. I found oh, the thing yeah. I was looking the for. The toxic person test. And this was an app I, on in, that was being advertised on Instagram and the the questions on it are absolutely paralyzed for you questions. Absolutely. Yeah. Mental health text a sponsored ad, the toxic person test. It is simply a fact that I am smarter than the average person. I do not like to be treated like one of the crowd. Everyone lies. I'm just better at it than most. <laughs> it sounds the, like it's like the parallax test. The it's best way to avoid being disappointed is to expect the worst. <laughs> I think that's good advice right there. Yeah, that's good advice, that's, that last that's one. solid. Yeah, right there. That's wild great. stuff. Wild stuff. So the video yeah, montage the video is just like a, it. it's just like an all, it starts out as just like this all American. Uh, you got a f happy farm family, you know, a nuclear family, but they're of the earth. And Norman the Rockwell, very, yeah, and the flag of. and the eagle and the music is very, you know, patriotic and stirring, Sousa esque kind of, yeah, sure, yeah, uplifting. Uh, and it just starts creeping in these other images. And of, there are words too that keep popping. Right, words happiness, like happiness, or, mother, father, me. Yes. Uh, I, I don't, some others. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, and, like and, that. And, and, and it gets going a little faster, Home. and it starts inserting, like, images of riots and uh, a dead guy laying on the ground, Hitler. Hitler and, and Nixon and Mao and uh, Thor, the Marvel Thor, Comics like character. You see Thor, Thor a bunch of times, a bunch and, of times. you know, you'll show... It'll say me, and it'll show Thor. And the music gets kind of weird and jangly. You know what it reminds me of? Have you ever watched those Nixon campaign commercials from 1968? Absolutely. That's what it reminds me yeah. of. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Law and order. It is time for an honest look at the problem of order in the United States. 
Dissent is a necessary ingredient of change. But in a system of government that provides for peaceful change, there is no cause that justifies resort to violence. Let us recognize that the first civil right of every American is to be free from domestic violence. So I pledge to you, we shall have order in the United States. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah it's very, it's very, uh, it's, it, it's very kind of um, authoritative. The whole thing about it, it's, it's just, you're seeing this for a reason, and it, everything about this is right, and it just, it just, it puts you into this, this um, space where you're just pissed off. Right. And, and the it's world. almost like it's it. It's like a it's a test, right? So they're measuring his responses, but it also to me reads like a sort of brainwashing type thing, where it's it's just like very basic film techniques of like montage, like the like real like Sergei Sergei Eisenstein, like yeah, image yeah, followed by image, and that means there's an association. So it's like right mother, like the word mother, and then a mother, and then like. They'll do enemy and then like foreigners or something like that. Yeah, and, just, and later on it'll it'll be en the same picture of enemies and it'll say mother. Yeah, and, and it'll be like <laughs> me and it'll have four or it'll be like me and it's just I really just kind of appreciated the almost like how stupidly basic it is, but also how effective that is. It, it, exactly, yeah. and it, and it's it's just it it it's almost looks like it was a project of its own. Off to the side of the film. It, you know? That's a good point. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure who put it all together, really but cool I mean, point. the sources and the end credits are just there's just tons of them. And it is something that is, you know, I'd seen that years before I'd seen the Parallax View. You know, you're, I didn't know what the Parallax View was. I had seen that as a YouTube video, and it freaked me the fuck out yeah. when I was in college. <laughs> but yeah, uh, years later, I found out what it was. But it. It's like a powerful, like, four-minute short film in and of itself. Yeah, and if you take it out of context, you think, this is real. It feels like, it feels, that's when you see it out of context is when it feels like brainwashing. And not yeah, less yeah. like a test and more like a, a right. sort of indoctrination. As part of the story, it's really, uh, it, it's really intense, but it also fits in with trying to, you know, develop Joe as um, the Warren Beatty character as, uh, as an asset, you mm -hmm. know, and... What he's trying to do is get closer and closer to, because in the in the main building he gets off, and again we've talked about how much of this is planned by them, yeah. because the guy who who's the other after taking the other bus boy from the initial assassination is suddenly walking around this building and he's following him. He falls into the airport. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and so the guy who was the assassin from before, Warren Beatty, sees him. Uh, uh, and he follows him and to the airport. To the and airport he and checks so a what bag. What happens here? Yeah, this is when it starts getting real. Yeah, he, the the guy checks a bag like a briefcase. That's yeah. all he has, and and then it shows him. Then he leaves. He does not get on. The right, he does yeah. not get on the plane. It shows him on an overpass across from the airport, right. watching. And Warren Beatty gets on the plane, and in essence, thwarts what he thinks is going to happen by saying there's a bomb on the plane. And they turn around to Los Angeles, and everybody gets off, and you hear an explosion. Yeah. Um, now, interestingly, one of the characters, we were talking about this, uh, a, the, the first class um, is a guy, uh, a senator, an senator. incumbent senator and his, and his aide. And they're, yeah, and this, when Warren Beatty sees this senator uh, on the plane is when he realizes, oh, this is another assassination. Another right? assassination. That's when he puts it together that right, there's right. this bomb going on. Right. But the dialogue between the senator and his aide ends up like really confusing me in, in the full context of the movie and that sort of scene. 
because this Parallax Corporation, basically, we know they're recruiting assassins, right? Right. And we know that they're killing people. And so we've got this incumbent senator whose name, I don't remember off the top of I don't either. But incumbent senator, and he's talking about how he's running against a guy named George Hammond, right, in, in this election. And this incumbent senator is in the state of California. They try to kill him, right? Just keep that in mind. Keep all that in mind for what comes later in the movie. Right, right. right. So the Parallax exactly. Corporation is trying to kill this incumbent senator who's running against a guy named George Hammond. But or, or yeah, or is this all part of an experiment right. with Warren Beatty that they just set up ahead of time? Yeah, and it's ultimately confusing because what they send Warren Beatty to do when they next contact him is to go to Atlanta and kill Hammond. And it's the same guy you see in the newspaper article as being George Hammond. Only now he's called John Hammond, and it's in the state of Georgia, but he was running for Senate in California. It's an editorial even you can't figure out. Point is, he doesn't like Hammond any better than he likes you. You're too strong on one side, Hammond's too strong on the other. That continuity yeah. makes no sense. Yeah. Is that just a film flaw in the script? Or, yeah, that it, to we, we to were me, really, really like, I think it almost, it might be intentional, or might not, it might just be a continuity error, but even if it's not, it makes the movie more like kind of confounding, which is <laughs> it effective, is. right? It is. Yeah, yeah. I almost think it's like a continuity error that works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not an error. And then, you know, that's Right, uh, yeah, not an error at all. Yeah, yeah. And and that's that's what uh, what's great about the movie is it leaves you like like the Kennedy assassination. Or, or yeah, I mean, nine eleven, or, or right. whatever. The, where there are serious questions about how, why, why did this happen? Who, who was really behind all this? And uh, especially Kennedy, and the, uh, which is parallels. One of the things that you know, so the the movie basically concludes where he thwarts this attempted assassination, and then Parallax sends him to go on a job to kill this Hammond guy. Um, and then from there is the conclusion of the movie. I really don't want to give it all away because no, it, is, no. it's a great, it is a great final ending, it, great final couple minutes. It really is a great final ending because um, it, it, goes, it goes back in a complete circle to the beginning of the movie. Uh, yeah, it does. And uh, that's why what, what I said about the waiter who was the fall guy in the beginning, what was his, knowing where Warren Beatty ends up, you start to wonder... That puts all the questions in your head about who that other guy yeah, was. Yeah, who was that other guy that yeah. fell off the space needle that right. everybody and why did he run? Why was he chasing you know? Uh yeah, yeah. It, it is it is a really good movie, um uh in, whole, in that sense. The I'm just all the logistics of it confuse me to such a, such an extent now. Like <laughs> even the Parallax Corporation, they're recruiting assassins, but why are they we don't ever know why they're doing it or who they're working right. for. Right, or, or who's paying for or, it. Or or because they're, from what we see in the movie, attempting to kill both candidates of an election. So does that mean, are they working for two different clients, right? Does someone want to kill Hammond and someone else wants to kill the And that's senator? a great unanswered question. Like nobody really, right. yeah. Because nobody knows who's behind it. And that's that's a interesting, that's the interesting thing about, um, you know, when you look at the Kennedy assassination or if you look at a... a the the Paul is dead rumors. Mm -hmm. Everybody gets obsessed with the clues, and the big picture is actually uh, not really addressed. It's just it, it's just getting wrapped up in all of the all of the details right. of how it happened. But like, who the hell is behind? Yeah, all right. This? Like like Donald Sutherland in a JFK when he says to Kevin Costner, "Well, it's a real question, isn't it? Why the how and the who is just scenery for the public. Oswald, Ruby, Cuba." The mafia, 
keeps him guessing like some kind of parlor game prevents him from asking the most important question, why? Why was Kennedy killed? Who benefited? Who has the power to cover it up? Who? And, and it's like, you know, like, exactly. How did it really shake out? Yeah. And there's other things in that movie too, where Joe Pesci says when Costner asked Pesci, "Who killed the president, Dave?" Oh, the shooters don't even fucking know. It's a riddle wrapped inside an enigma. Da da da. And it's this whole thing where I think that's part. Of, we'll have a JFK episode, I'm sure. But that's part of the great metaphor of that movie is it's almost like the details of the assassination are beside the point. Like it's all this, all this web of things. Exactly. And a lot of Watergate talk is like that too. Where the yeah. Details yeah. are kind of beside the point. Yeah, exactly. And it, again, it's window dressing or like we were talking about uh, our purposeful our, distraction. Our, yeah. Our illustrious governor, Ron DeSantis and the whole kind of culture war shit that goes on where it's just these hot button nonsensical issues that really don't point to solving the main problem. Right, and you got to imagine that this is a, a pattern that has been going on, and it, it to me seems like the culture war is something that's deliberately cultivated to keep people confused, absolutely, and to keep sort of people whose class interests should be aligned against each other, against each other. Yeah, that's exactly how, I, and right. that's like Bob Roberts, another one of my favorite movies, does a lot of talking about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, the parallax view. Um, a, a good flick to check out. Warren Beatty's excellent, restrained, um, you know. Yeah, he had uh, just, his first movie in like three years, because he had just come back uh, from working in McGovern's campaign, being uh -huh. like a high-level operative for George McGovern. So that's, you know, you can feel sort of the political disillusionment all over it, right? uh, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Just, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I got to get back to work, and the first thing I'm going to do is a political thriller. Right, yeah. <laughs> and it's that about assassination. Zero money until yeah. 2009 <laughs> in fucking France. I wonder why. You think maybe the Parallax Corporation had something to do with that? Maybe. Were they sabotaging the release? Who's behind it all? You know? Who's responsible for the Hawaiian music in the elevator soon the movie Simon? Yeah, yeah. Dude, that's right. All music in elevators. That's a good one. Yeah. That's, that's one that will definitely be, uh, you know, Alan Arkin is going to probably get an episode of his own. Oh, definitely. Day, which we'll talk about Simon, I'm sure. Well, um, the I was going to point out um, that, that Nashville also is about, um, ostensibly about political assassination. Sure. As far as a plot point. And he said in the Playboy interview, he said that shooting the, uh, I'm paraphrasing, shooting the Rob country Alden. singer. Yeah, Altman said shooting the country singer confused people because if the guy shot the politician, nobody would be surprised. <laughs> in effect, condoning political assassination. You know? Um, and like I pointed out, um, you know, you just never, you never know who's at the top. Where does it go? And who, what, what's the line uh, from Deep Throat, which is the next movie we're going to talk about, right. All the President's Men, where follow he says, the follow the money. Yeah, follow I the think money. that's the first time that phrase probably came up yeah, in American you know what? culture. It's, it's a real, like, one to remember. It's, oh, yeah, it's a yeah. universally applicable phrase. <laughs> yeah, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Follow the money. Well, I have to tell you that... Uh, 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 Alan, you know, this it's just a really beautifully shot movie. Uh, Gordon Willis, we talked about, um, again, and, and the music. Um, Michael Small again. Yes, Michael Small again. Uh, wonderful stuff. Um, end credits. Did you notice uh, in the end credits there was uh, the main cast and then there was featuring and it had a bunch of names, but it didn't say who they were playing. It just had the names. Name Stacy Keach Sr. was in there. 
No kidding. Yeah, uh, I didn't see that. Uh, wow. I don't know who he played, but that's uh, Stacey Keach's I, father. You know, I, I was looking in the Getting Back to Clute. I was looking for the credits, and I couldn't find it, but there was a uh, very famous model at the time sitting next to Jane Fonda at one of these in the uh, beginning. auditions sure. in the beginning. Yeah. Hmm. Like a Janice Pennington or something like that. I'm, I'm, yeah. Probably... Probably no credit, um, but you look, you see her face like, wow, I've seen her on a million magazine covers. Yes, it was really cool. All right, so let's take a break. All right. And we'll get to our next feature in just a moment. Five Bills from with Mac Kennedy and Todd Edmondson. President's Men is, is the third movie of the uh, Paranoia Trilogy, 1976. I think it's probably Alan Pakula's best-known movie, uh, yeah. most likely. Won a couple Oscars, nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Um, it's a good movie. It's the movie, uh, a story of Woodward and Bernstein at the Washington Post, and they're yeah. sort of reporting on the Watergate scandal. Based on the book. Based on the, the book. same name. Um, screenplay by William Goldman. Yeah, one of the uh, great screenwriters. One of the greats. Uh, he, won, he won an Oscar for this movie. One of two wins uh, there you in go. this movie. Gordon Willis photography again. Once again. Who did the music here? Is it Michael Small? I think it is. Let's see. No, it's David Shire. Tally Shire's Oh, David dad. Shire. That's yeah, right. That? That's right. So that's the one I think I meant that to is write not that down Michael Small. Yeah. And then I don't know who did Starting Over. We'll have to see. Um... Oh well, that's that's another that's a whole other. Uh, oh, you know what? It's yeah, it is. It's Marvin Hamlish. Yeah, he ever, he yeah. he wrote all of those ridiculous songs, but really we're getting funny. ahead of ourselves. So that's yeah. a, that's that's going to be our that's comedy. Another, uh, yeah, we'll get get to we'll that lighten another. lighten things up, but that's a great movie too. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I noticed all the presidents' men. Uh, the, the The credits are interesting because it says a Robert Redford, Alan J. Pakula film, and Dustin Hoffman gets top billing. Huh, interesting. Yeah, and yeah. Redford's not listed as a... And you know what's funny? If you look at the poster, it says Redford Hoffman, Old President's Men. Yeah, so yeah. So it's almost like they did one of them have top billing on the poster and one of them on the actual movie. Right, right. I guess putting his name as producer was enough. Yeah, I think that was probably what Pretty what clear who was in it, but... Uh, the other producer, too, credited is Walter Koblenz, and that's a name we've seen a lot in this, mm. po in this podcast already. He... Direct uh, when on our Michael Ritchie episode, Down Her Racer and The Candidate. So he and Redford ah. were big collaborators. Excellent. And actually, in Down Her Racer, the name rang a bell uh, again because you know the moments when Redford is skiing and they have like the the video screen with the standings on it and it's yeah. like one two three da da da. 
the guy who was in fifth like the whole time was named Coborns. <laughs> and so it's it must be a reference to this producer who he's worked with a bunch of That's times. like the Hitchcock cameo. Right. You know, yeah. you gotta, gotta get, so get that, in there once somewhere. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. Yeah, well this um this movie, I mean, it's just a roller coaster ride and, and you know, you know the story, but you just don't you don't realize how much work these guys put into uh, a story that Jason Robart says, you know, Pew Research says 60% of the American public doesn't even know what, what, what Watergate is. You know, it just was like a blip on the radar and they were hitting it and hitting it. And Jason Robarts, I think, did he win? He won, the, he won an Oscar also. He's the first of two in a row. He won the next year also for a movie He's called so Julia. phenomenal He's as great. a publisher in this movie. Absolutely yeah. is yeah. a great part of this movie. Yeah. Well, what... We talked about who who won the Oscars for his movie already, Goldman and Jason Robards. Um, there's another thing that I wanted to mention here about this movie is just how many Oscar winners are in it and also nominees in the cast. And, I mean, you're going to obviously know your Redford and your uh, uh, Hoffman and your Robards, but it goes a lot deeper than that in terms of that. Do you want to take sure. a guess on how many Oscar winners oh, and nominees God. are in it? I don't know. Um, um they, they, they credit Martin Balsam as a special appearance. Five. So five winners and then four more nominees. Wow. Yeah. That's huge. That's very huge. Do you want me to go through them? Sure. So we got Dustin Hoffman, uh, Jason Robards, Redford, who's won an Oscar for Best Director, but it counts. Martin Balsam is an Oscar winner for a movie called A Thousand Clowns, where he plays Jason Robards' brother. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's wow. a movie from the 60s that I've not seen, but I'm a big Balsam and Robards fan. Yeah. And then the fifth one, this one I didn't know. This one I had to look up. F. Murray Abraham is in the very beginning as a cop. The cop who uh, comes in, the plainclothes cop with a hat, that's F. Murray Abraham. Uh, no shit. Yeah. Wow. And then the nominees is Jane Alexander, who got nominated for this movie. Right. As the bookkeeper. He's right. the bookkeeper. Jack Warden is an Oscar nominee. Hal Holbrook was nominated for uh, that movie. He made the Sean Penderecki movie, Into the Wild. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. for that. And then our boy Ned. Ned's yeah. in this movie. Ned. Ned, who was nominated this same year for Network, but he was in this movie, too. Yeah, so there you go. Nine people, uh, actors, either nominees or winners. Wow. It's crazy. Yeah, it is yeah. crazy. So it's like a huge It is cast. crazy. Um, yeah, and I do love the peripheral characters. I got confused because um, who who is the guy... Um, the guy and I and all I remember him from is the first Star Trek movie. Stephen Collins. Stephen Collins. Yeah, the Seventh Heaven Dad. Who's there? Uh, you go. The uh, uh, confessed sex offender, right? Yeah, he's a uh, molested people. He's a yeah. Yeah. well, he's he plays uh, an aide to who uh, uh, to Hunt to, or Coulson. Uh, uh, Haldeman, I think. Haldeman, right? yeah, yeah. He was a. Sl- He's the one who wouldn't wouldn't say Haldeman. He was but he Sloan, say- yeah. He was the bookkeeper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, his wife, I saw his wife, and I'm like, holy shit, is that Catherine Ross? But it wasn't Catherine Ross. It's Meredith Baxter. And Meredith Baxter yeah, before right. she became Meredith Baxter Burney. Yep. Uh, she's pregnant and he's like I'm just gonna I'm moving I'm selling my place I'm getting out of here it's just like another one of these people who uh, like in the parallax view you've got people who are saying I feel like my life is in danger mm-hmm. uh, that's exactly yeah that's... I know they're watching me and I and I just I'm just gonna leave and hope it blows over and you notice that in um, each of these movies like they all kind of uh each of the first three we've talked about confront that idea of like, yeah, I, yeah. There, there's nowhere I can turn. I just have to shut up and keep my head down because I'm going to die. Yeah. And you know, each time it's like, 
you know, include it was sort of this one ambitious dipshit of the chemical company. In Parallax's view, it's like this corporation with tentacles everywhere. And now here, it's like the U.S. government. U.S. government. Right? Like, it's, <laughs> each time the conspiracy gets bigger, but the dynamics are the exact same. Exactly like it's, the it's, same. It's, it's yeah, really yeah. interesting. I love that. And then you've got... You've got uh, you've got a small, in this case, two people, but you know, in each movie, somebody is trying to get at, at mm -hmm. the truth at all costs, and everybody else kind of uh, doesn't take them particularly seriously. In the you know, yeah, like, yeah, 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 at least and, in Parallax View in this movie. Yeah. In Parallax View, he just didn't. He had very little help, at, uh, only at the very beginning. And Hugh Cronin tried to help, but he didn't. Yeah, yeah he, didn't he, didn't, he didn't last too long. He got the pep. Yeah, he got the pep. Pep in the coffee. Um, yeah, and and uh, you want and, your coffee to have pet, but not that much. <laughs> not that kind of pet. Right. <laughs> um, one of the early one of the early aides um, that um, Dustin Hoffman and Dustin Hoffman it's Carl Bernstein. It's got he he can schmooze it out of anybody. Yeah. I mean, the the thing with Jane Alexander is she's very ambivalent about talking to anybody about anything. She's got and, a very great scene. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and he, he, he when he's so when he's finished with her, it's compressed. But he comes back to Woodward, and he's just got like scraps of paper yeah, yeah, yeah. and matchbook covers and shit. And he said, you know, I drank twenty cups of coffee. He's I was all kinds of hours. All yeah. lots of cigarettes in that movie. <laughs> yeah. Dustin Hoffman is singing it up the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> they get in the elevator yeah, and Redford looks at him and like, anywhere you don't smoke. Uh, or when they're interviewing, I think they might be interviewing Hugh Sloan, the Stephen Collins character, and Redford goes, I'm a Republican. I am too. And, and Dustin Hoffman gives him the funniest look. That look, look is like, so great. Yeah. yeah like I, Which like, I think is accurate. Right? Yeah. Like Woodford, like Woodward was a Republican. Yeah, yeah. he was. And uh, Bernstein clearly wasn't. But it's sort of like, you're telling me that I'm finding this out yeah, right. now this in the middle of all this shit. Are you, like, what is like, And what he's almost fuck? like, "Are you lying?" Like, you, you couldn't. It was very funny. Expression. And he knows Redford as you know the 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 Woodward character is not. No, he, he's not. He wouldn't use the kind of uh, leverage and the kind of tactics that Bernstein uses, which is just mm -hmm. to schmooze and to say yeah. anything and to stall. And so, in the, anyway, early early in the road, uh, early in the movie, there's a. Um, he's outside, uh, Burns, uh, Hoffman's outside with a young woman. Why are you looking at me like that? You're attractive. Jesus. You are very attractive. You know, my girlfriend told me to watch out for you. Who? I'm not giving any names. Well, that woman outside. is Penny, Penny Pizer. No, she's really pretty. She was wearing like the green shirt. With yeah, the collar. yeah, yeah. And I she's sort of like, that, yeah. and she's sort of like a, a you know, and just an office clerk for yeah. for somebody for Colson or somebody. Yeah, and she's just kind of one of the first people they talk to about yeah, the phone book for, yeah. for uh, Hunt. Yeah, and he and Bernstein is just kind of like he's the veteran of the paper, and actually Woodward has been on the paper for nine months, and they make a point of saying that early right, in the movie yeah, that he's kind of a rookie. Uh, um, yeah, but it's just the tension of, of trying to, you know, Jason Robards just like, damn, got it. Where's the goddamn story? The truth is, I can't figure out what we've got. I don't know. It still feels thin. And and, and I love the newsroom scenes where, where I was going to talk about that too. Yeah, yeah. Rose, uh, uh, um, Jason Robards as a publisher, Ben Bradley has got all his editors around the table and uh, sitting they're with his feet up. And, and he's, he's so yeah. he's got this great. He's foreign family. national economic, you know, whatever their categories are, and uh, they go through and they do, do you know, and it, it it constantly reminds you, I got a paper to put out, and this story is not. 
as big a story. Right. Uh, it never was as big a story as it was until it really mm -hmm. became the thing. That... But they talk about how like nobody else was really trying to cover it. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, yeah. I mean, I know that in real life there was a lot of New York Times stuff going as well, and I guess that was probably downplayed for the sake of this movie. Well, they but, referred yeah. to how the Times scooped them on something. Yeah, that's uh, right. Uh, um, but yeah, it's it's very compressed. Yeah, but I think compressed, but largely like I don't think there's any like inaccurate things in it. No, no, no. Not yeah, at all. it seems very uh, yeah. sort of like so much of it is like interviewing people and names and yeah. like just yeah. It's I mean if you I'm I've been like knee deep in Watergate since I was very young. It's oh, been, me like, a too. Weird, I had a, well, you lived through it. Well, yeah, I had I all been, these like, insane flashbacks yeah. watching this movie, and I, I've just kind of like been obsessed with it as like something I've been reading about my whole life. So it's not hard to follow necessarily. But I can imagine somebody who doesn't know who fucking, you know, Hunt and Coulson and Liddy and all these guys are going into it. There's a lot of, like, you're, because the movie was released when it was released, there's a lot of, like, you're going to know a lot of who these guys are going into it, so it doesn't bother explaining it. Mm -hmm. Which is good. I don't mind it. You know, it works for me. But I do, the question is raised in my mind, like, would somebody else my age or younger than me, like, relate to this at all? Or yeah, just that's a good question. That's a good question. Which I don't. It's it's like an interesting thing where it's like the movie seemed to probably work at its absolute best the moment it was released. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was very. Uh, it was very uh, in real time. Yeah. Seventy six. I remember. Seventy six. I was. Uh, well, how old was I? I was eighteen. Uh, eighteen. Jeez. Yeah, and uh, but I remember, you know, seventy four. I remember when he resigned, and I remember all of that shit happening. In fact, Hunter Thompson, uh, I think it's a great shark hunter. With most of his McGovern coverage. They oh, that's about a Fear and Loathing seventy. Fear and Loathing, the yeah. One. yeah. I think he referenced Fear. Uh, he referenced Watergate. How how bugged people got because the hearings just went on and on mm -hmm. and on, and it was on TV constantly. And they're like, "Where the hell's my show?" You know. Yeah, what, right. What what next for weird Betty? I think yeah. was the show he had talked about. <laughs> but yeah, it it was it was all consuming um, at the time. I'm wondering if uh, the January sixth committee hearings are going to be like that. I, you know, certain networks are going to. I think it's a different atmosphere because of how TV just media is consumed so differently. Yeah, like, nobody's yeah. going to be watching the same channel all day anymore, no matter what's on. That's right. Well, yeah. there's so there's so many. Uh, the, like Bruce Springsteen said, there's 52 channels and nothing on. Right. Uh, and he said that in the beginning of cable, and now there's just thousands of Now things. there's just as much on with much more channels. <laughs> <laughs> Many more channels, yeah. not much else on. <laughs> but that was the interesting thing about Watergate is that um, what I liked about the scenes in the newsroom, which was just really... Uh, that, a fantastic it's place. It's got this like, propulsive, chaotic energy to it that it seems like that that make me think, Context be damned, this is just good filmmaking. I don't care who Coulson and, McGovern and you know, uh, Hunt and et cetera are. This is just, like, really yeah, exciting. it really like, is. Like, the split diopter shots of Rob Redford on the phone, where the whole newsroom is all sorts of chaotic things are happening, all sorts of these potential distractions. But because of the split diopter that Pecula uses, Redford is also completely in focus. So it gives this impression where he's on the phone... And he's just ha he's insulated so hard trying to focus on what he's hearing. Right. But this chaos is going on around him. Yeah, yeah. I raise a lot of money. I'm, uh, I'm Midwest Finance Chairman. For the committee to reelect. Hello? Yeah, yes, that's right. 
Now, how do you think your check got into the bank account of Watergate burglar? I'm uh, a proper citizen. What I do is proper. Oh, I, I understand. I've just been through a terrible ordeal. My neighbor's wife has been kidnapped. Oh, um, well, how do you think your check got into Barker's account, though? And he's trying to act like totally calm while learning. It's just a really good... I mean, a, you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a couple of scenes where um, where they're both at their typewriter, and it's kind of a wide shot, and you hear... The this yeah, and you hear the soundtrack of whatever's on the news. Yeah, that's right. And and it's Agnew, oh, Agnew Nixon. Oh, who was it? Agnew and uh, and who else came out and said, "Oh, Woodward and Bernstein are full of shit." You know, it's it's uh, it, it, it's oh, slanderous. The, and, the Attorney General Kleindienst came. Uh, yeah, Kleindienst. He went on Dick Cavett actually. Yeah, yeah, Cavett yeah. Again, there's a great exactly. clip of him on Cavett. Yeah, exactly there was some that. a lot of historical clips going mm-hmm. on, and when you hear. When you hear the soundtrack of the TV news at the time, while the newspapers are going, I mean that's just a golden age of of. Uh, we we were talking about how, you know, um, my cousin Brad Edmondson, a, a wonderful writer, wonderful friend and human being, he said, you know, what will we do without the Washington Post and the New York Times? I mean, even now, but a lot of it is that era where they, you know, where they they were the yeah. news. Well, then especially. Then, yeah, that's yeah, what then I mean. Especially. Yeah, then. You, those those were your choices. Because now they're like... You know, and you didn't get those newspapers unless you lived in, the, in that those area, central sure. areas, too. And it's not like... I mean, yes, they were still... Obviously, Catherine Graham was big money, and the you know, New York Times was big money, but it wasn't corporate big money. It was individual big money. So right. it seemed like they would take risks and go places that will not happen today. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. And they'd already been bitten, uh, bitten in the ass by William Randolph Hearst, who's just the king of. Uh, in fact, he gets, he gets the the term "yellow journalism" was coined for his newspapers. Yeah, uh, Joseph Pulitzer, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, That's right. So this is a really cool, um, really cool window into the news, um, news gathering. And funny thing, I'm getting back to Bernstein. The he he's lived there for so long. He knows like people who just work and you know he he's got a lot of there are people in his rolodex like but, but woodward has got this deep throat his hal holbrook character that's woodward's big connection mm-hmm. and they're very surreptitious they meet in a parking garage in the dark and uh, they're very careful he's very woodward's very careful to take two taxis he says i'm not going to talk to you about i'll tell you what does he say no i have to do this my way you tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. And Woodward gets really frustrated with him after about the third meeting. But it's you like, can see how scared he is, too, how scared how Holbrook is. Yeah, like, yeah. Going through all this, it's like Jane Fonda in Clue or Warm Baby in yeah. The Paralyzed View. Exactly right. It's it's just that, that it's paranoia. You know, because uh, as William S. Burroughs, a wonderful writer of Naked Lunch, said, a paranoid is somebody who knows all the facts. Right. Just, yeah, <laughs> just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get me. That's right. It's like, <laughs> always <laughs> trying to live by that rule. So that's a, yeah. This is a wonderful, uh, you know, because they they get to where they're basically told by Deep Throat that their lives are in danger. Mm-hmm. And, 
And the, the movie kind of shifts into another gear. It really does. Yeah, you think. Fifteen minutes. Yeah, you think uh, Jason Robards. They go to his house, and they were like, uh, "This is getting really fucking serious." And and Robards just like nothing's writing on this except the uh, First Amendment, the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Not that any of that matters, but if you guys fuck up again, I'm going to get mad. And, you know, that's, he won the Oscar for playing Ben Bradley. That I also, I didn't talk about this before. I missed it when we were talking about that Oscar year. I also wanted to mention who he won over, like the other nominees. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How wild it was. So, um, Lawrence Olivier from Marathon Man. Ooh. Burt Young and Burgess Meredith from Rocky. Okay. And then the fifth one is our boy Ned. My favorite performance ever in any movie is Ned Beatty in Network. In Network. Yeah. He was in there too. You are messing with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale. And since he showed up in this movie, it passes our uh, Ned Beatty, Charles Durning, Brian Dennehy test. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Ned is like, he's like a sheriff in Dade County. He's a district attorney. District attorney in Dade County. One of them. Okay, you and I are going to have to have an agreement that you're not going to reveal the source of your information. All these are cashier's checks on uh, a bank in Mexico City. All these checks from Mexico? You see? How come? Does money originate there? Well, I doubt it started off as pesos. That's the thing. uh, that We were talking about this off mic. Um, Hal Holbrook. Uh, Deep Throat character coined the term Follow the money And uh, we were thinking that's probably the first cultural reference to that And that's it's just become a, a, a universal it's a edict good, It's a good like starting point for If you have a question about anything, follow the money it's like, I always think of it as like, almost like the scientific method of just yeah. how, to, how to solve this problem Exactly follow the money. And that's the thing in Parallax View that's, fr- uh, that's frustrating about the movie Is you just don't know who, who owns Parallax Corporation Where's the money who, coming who, from? Like, it, are, are they working on their own behalf? Or are they literally taking clients? Like oh, kill this guy for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, are they just uh, are they just corporate professional killers for hire? And so, somehow it... they have some way of being hooked back in with the power because of those Senate scenes or the committee scenes. Yeah, yeah. It's just really uh, it's 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 really. Uh, and it's, although this doesn't involve um, all the president's men doesn't involve political assassination, it's certainly um, the the downfall of Richard Nixon, which. Uh, which is a sort of a uh, he sort of assassinated himself right, in a yeah. strange in a strange way. Well, that's what Holbrook even says. Like it's not Watergate; it's all these other operations that are going on up to and maybe including planned assassinations. Who knows, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Like, especially if you consider like things going on in foreign countries. Yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Mitchell started doing covert stuff before anyone else. The list is longer than anyone can imagine. It involves the entire U.S. intelligence community, FBI, CIA, justice. It's incredible. Cover-up had little to do with Watergate. It was mainly to protect the covert operations. It leads everywhere. Get out your notebook. There's more. 
probably everybody. The deep state, right? That's what <laughs> it is. Deep state. The deep state. You hate using the word deep state because, you know, the phrase because of who else often uses it, but that's what it is. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah. And funny, Deep Throat, um, uh, it was within the last year or two that um, the actual Deep Throat person came out in public. It was Mark Phelps. It was a. It was. It, it, it was, was longer quite than quite a while. Than yeah, it was. was in like I remember it was before he died. Or I think I saw it again recently. It was right before he died. Yeah. It was like it was his daughter or granddaughter. Somebody's his daughter said, yeah, you, know, was, "You ought to just tell him." Two thousand seven or something ish. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was. A, it was a while ago, but yeah, I just saw that again the, recently. When the movie was made, it was not known. Oh, not known at all. And that was that was another who. Who is that? You know, you know it's an actual person. And again, it's like who, who's behind everything? You know, you always wonder who's behind the. And do the front men really? It's like the the way that Woodward and Bernstein just dig through all of this bureaucratic kind of crap and all of these bank accounts and who had to and and uh, and the committee to reelect the president. A lot of paperwork. A lot of people. Like another thing on all these packing movies, people just taking tons of notes. Like yeah. a lot of paper. Yeah. A lot of paper. Yeah. I was thinking that about the newsroom. It's just piles of paper everywhere. I really like the Donald Segretti character. What was that term you guys use for screwing up the opposition? Rat fucking. That's right. And you were just doing the same kind of stuff when you were out campaigning for President Nixon. <laughs> let me tell you something. We did a lot worse things in college. <laughs> Look, let me ask you something, Carl. What would you have done if you were just getting out of the Army, been away from the real world for four years, didn't know what kind of law you wanted to practice, and one day you get a call from an old friend asking if you want to go to work for the President of the United States? Jeez. Chapin was the appointment secretary for... Nixon when he called. Yeah. Listen, if those sinister things really happened, I don't think Dwight knew anything about him. He just did what he was told. Told by who? Wasn't Roger Stone in with those guys, that same crowd? I I'm think he was. Yeah, I'm almost certain he was, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's got Nixon's uh, a tattoo of Nixon on his back or something. Yeah. 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 Fort Lauderdale <laughs> resident Roger Stone. Oh, brother. Yeah. Los was... Olas loves walking down the street on Los Olas. Uh, I haven't seen him, but like I've seen pictures of him. I very easily could have seen him. Like, he's right by my house. Well, it's funny that um, that um, Rachel Maddow did a really nice um, podcast, and, and uh, it's a program, too, uh, called Bagman. And it's about how about Agnew was just kind of uh, running a criminal enterprise on his own. Which is like, it's like a footnote part of uh, this whole thing. This this movie doesn't mention him at all. You see him talking on TV about uh, saying that, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, it was slander and none of it was true, blah, 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 denial. And uh, that's all you see. But yeah, he he was just as big a crook as anyone. Oh, sure. That's... It, it, was, it was just classic. Yeah, that's, that's what happens when you're like the number two guy and you're overshadowed by a more sort of high-profile crook. I, you don't get noticed as much. Well, it's funny. I think, um, you know, th- there's a lot of people growing up, growing into their life when they have Trump. Mm-hmm. It's hard enough to deal with. But, yeah, I keep telling my kids, you know, Trump is way worse than Nixon. And when you watch all the president's men, you realize um, you realize that the the crime is as big as the cover up 
gets and the more people involved in the cover up again it's like any other conspiracy somebody knows right somebody knows something there there's too many people involved you can't pull off something like this without a lot of help well that's why i think like the like the key of a lot of these sort of conspiracies that are in real life that i think people might miss or maybe it's just kind of my thought on it is a lot of the time, even the P, you know, like Joe Pesci said in JFK. But who the fuck pulls whose chain? Who the fuck knows? Oh, what a deadly web we weave when we practice to deceive. And who killed the president? Oh, man, why don't you fucking stop it? Shit, who did? This is too fucking big for you, you know that? This is, who did the president? Who killed Ken? Fuck, man, it's, it's a mystery. It's a mystery wrapped in a riddle inside an enigma. The fucking shooters don't even know, don't you get it? Fuck, man! I can't keep talking like this. You're gonna fucking kill me! I'm gonna fucking die! A lot of the time, the active participants in these things don't... They're kept in the dark about it, like this other gunman in the parallax view, right? So, I, I that's why these things, to me, the logic of, oh, fall apart if it was a conspiracy. Well, I don't know. Yeah, it's I mainly don't know just a either. bunch of people rowing in the same direction, you know? Two or three people need to really know. Other people are acting their self-interest and running in circles. Yeah, Doing exactly. what their boss tells them. Or they're on a team, you know? Yeah, it gets back right. To, gets back to North Dallas 40, mm -hmm. you know? We're not the team! They're the team! We're the equipment! Welcome yeah. back to the Every Movie is the Same podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we like to thread everything together as tightly as possible. They're all the same. Every movie is the same. <laughs> all right, well, let's take a break. I need to smoke a cigar. Yep. All right, man. Five Bills from With Mac Kennedy and Todd Edmondson. talk about we're briefly out of the political conspiracy mode for a minute for right 1979's movie starting over uh starring burt reynolds jill claybert candace bergen charles durning for another another entry in the charles durning test absolutely absolutely yeah and then francis sternhagen also plays his wife in the movie yeah, yeah. and you got uh, peripheral um characters uh, austin pendleton is is great and mary Kay place i Happy to Shows see up her. briefly. Yeah, that's yeah. right. She she of the uh, Mary Hartman. Mary. She Hartman. is. Yeah, she does have a funny cameo where she's like <laughs> on this date with Burt Reynolds, and Burt just is not enjoying it <laughs> no, at all. He's having this terrible time. Yeah, Candace Bergen is uh, divorced. Burt, right? Uh, she's Bert's divorcing Burt in the very beginning. That's the first right. Scene. That's she's the first scene. And she's gonna she's gonna go pursue a career in music. Right, because she's a uh, singer, and Bert, Bert didn't realize she was a singer. <laughs> right, yeah. he didn't know, uh, and he just was blindsided by this. When I go out that door, what are you going to do? You're just going to stand here and start crying while I'm I drive around the block trying to figure out a way to get back. You leave? You know? No. What are you going to do? I'll probably work on my song. It's not like the painting and the photography. It's not. 
You just have a thing about my voice. So it's a it's a whole uh, travelogue of his of his mindset. Bert's uh, just a wonderfully comic actor. I mean, this, this he was not the first choice either, apparently, for this movie. Which um, makes sense. Yeah. Because it is... I don't think he was proven to be this... Take on this kind of role. That's what I... Yeah, like, I mean, I love Burt Reynolds. You know, we've talked about him before, and we'll talk about him probably many times again. But this movie is almost like after a string of, uh, you know, car chase movies, right? Your right. White Lightnings and your Smoking the Bandit and exactly. stuff like that. And uh, Not that he wasn't bankable. It's just no, I mean, it was he was a kind huge star, but it was almost like Burt... I remember reading in his autobiography, um, which is called But Enough About Me, <laughs> which is a good book for any Bird fans. But he talked about how he, he, he wanted to do this movie and made this movie almost as like a conscious sort of like break from his normal persona, like yeah. trying to do it against type role. Yeah. Play. He's a guy from the North. He's in Boston. He's not, you know, good old boy Bert, you know, the way we always see him as a guy from the South. And he's a writer. And he's just kind of like a low key pretty average guy going through this emotional turmoil. He, he moves to Boston to live with his brother in the very beginning. After it's Charles Sterning. And his yeah. brother's Charles Sterning, yeah. And, uh, he's married. Uh, Hello in there. <laughs> She's uh, Charles Durning's wife. They're both psychiatrists, I guess. Yeah, and, they're great. Uh, yeah, and Durning is retired, but he's still... It's just about the help thing. We should say that it's written by James L. Brooks, who's yeah. has a wonderful way of... of uh, of doing, uh, of dealing with romantic relationships mm -hmm. and um, and just relationships. With well, yeah, of course, generally. broadcast news is another one of the best about yeah. sort of people meeting each other and that yeah. kind of like that sort of stage when you're first meeting a person and then like the weird awkwardness of getting to know you and like we both like each other but we don't know how much we like each other and inevitably yeah. we're gonna fuck it up and then it's never gonna be the same again <laughs> and, and you know you don't even know what you did to like that. I really love Bert and Jill Clayberg because that's eventually his. Uh, Brother Charles Durning and his wife set Bert up with Chill Glaber, who's a sister, uh, a sister, a teacher, um, studying for a master's, and her name's Marilyn in the movie. And that relationship is sort of the central part of the movie, more or less. Yeah, yeah more or less. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's, that has its ups and downs. Uh, uh, Charles Sterning gets Bert to go to a uh, hilarious a divorced men's, men's group, group in the yeah. basement of a church. A killer... Uh, Killer cast in that support group, oh, right? Yeah. yeah, just great. Pendleton, Wallace Shawn, Pendleton, uh, uh, J.O. Sanders. I think Wallace Shawn has one line. Yeah, 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 he hardly even opens uh, his mouth, yeah. but he just has this physical, physical presence. Him it? and uh, Pendleton and J.O. Sanders, just the three of them together are just kind of really funny looking. So, like, <laughs> it's just, it's gonna be like, it's just like Bert is just talking, and these three guys there, like, wear so much on their faces that it's. Yeah, their characters just without saying much. It, it's really wonderful. Yeah. Austin Pendleton's character in particular is is uh, you can tell he's like a veteran of the group. And there is a, there is an older guy, a much older man yeah. there, but he's just recently divorced. His wife just mm -hmm. out of nowhere kind of divorces him. But Austin Pendleton <laughs> talks about how he's going to get married to the same woman for the fourth time. Listen, I may as well say it and get it over with. I started seeing my ex-wife again. No, I know, I know, I know. I don't know what to say about it. It just... Maybe you're all just going to have to tie me to the mast to get over this. It's this crazy thing he has. He, he keeps marrying the same woman. Oh. I know we can't be together. It doesn't work. But she called. And even though I know how balled up everything always gets, I really can't stay away. 
I love her. just got this blissful look on his face like it's just the one part of the relationship that he can't resist is enough mm -hmm. you know he's just like such a he's just such a self victim kind of, kind of just like a, a schlub yeah a schlub he's perfect at that yeah so it, it's just really wonderful com comedic um he, he and Wallace Shawn, too, Simon was like right around this time also like yeah. this is 1979 when was Simon 1980 it's Seventy. Uh, that's a good question. It's, it's right around now. Right around like, there. Right around yeah, then. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, Wallace Shawn had a nice turn in uh, in a, in Woody Allen um, Manhattan. Okay. Uh, right. He was Diane Keaton's old boyfriend, and uh, yeah, it's a great scene. Um, I'm here for a symposium on semantics. I like yeah. my dinner with Andre is a great movie. Yeah, that's something that's worth really. Watching, oh yeah, watching. yeah, yeah that would be. Movie. That would be cool. So this is this is just a, a you know it it's it's not a it's not a shallow nonsensical thing um, th this relationship and like you said Burton and Joe Kleiberg have great chemistry. Yeah, yeah, it's really I love watching them together. And There's... Candace Bergen is in the beginning of the movie dumping him, and then you don't see her for a while. But when he does go on his first date before he meets uh, Jill, when he goes on his date with Mary Kay Place, Candace Bergen's song is playing on the radio. And Mary Kay Place yeah. is singing along. <laughs> it's too great. It's gonna be It's just like so horrifying. Oh he can hear it from outside the door. He's like, oh, God. Better than ever. <laughs> and Candace Bergen is just so wonderfully, comically, you know, you know? And, and, and she just puts herself out there. She, she's just not a good singer. No. Doesn't, and apparently these are her songs, too. And it's just trite, awful, you know. And it, yeah. Just the disco. shadow of my man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, the disco, uh, the whole disco feel. Um, music by Marvin Hamlish and lyrics by uh, Marilyn Bergman. Um, just right on the money, man. Carol Bear Sager, yeah. Yeah, as a, as a musician, I'm really just, uh, I'm just enthralled with anybody who would do to do that. Just be that awful. Well, She's really awful. Well, yeah, Candace, you know, long time, you know, Big star of television, and, and, and but movie wise, this is the only time she got an Oscar nomination is for starting over. Really? And Jill Clayburgh got a nomination too, and Bert didn't. And like what I was saying before, he kind of took this role almost as a play to get a nomination. Yeah, there you the other go. Two stars well, don't, which, you know. Eh. Well, that proves how good he was in he's the movie. He's great, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's without him that that movie doesn't work at all. He just. He's almost got a, there's, there's, there's one look on his face that's almost like a Belushi kind of take where he's, he's, you can see his mind working and he's going to goof on Joel Kleiberg and take Polaroids of her in the shower. <laughs> and he's got this look on his face like, like, uh, like Belushi's stealing food in the, in the buffet at Animal House. It's really he's great. he's eating chips or something yeah, yeah. as he's taking pictures. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, it's really funny, funny stuff. Very, very funny, funny stuff. stuff. Yeah. yeah. James L. Brooks, um, um, 
he he's a director that I uh, I would love to talk about, like Sidney Pollack, who we're going to talk about next week. Sidney Pollack as an actor. Mm-hmm. James L. Brooks has a great turn in an Albert Brooks movie called Modern Romance, where he plays a film director. Well, I've not seen that, yeah. but if we do five films about making movies, there you go. You yeah, Albert Brooks list. is yeah. an editor, and he's. Um, He's got all these great ideas, and James L. Brooks is just this. He, you can not tell. These no, not related. But James L. Brooks, as an actual director playing a real shithead director, is 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 Pretty wonderful. Good, yeah. Wonderful. And Bert has a. Uh, you know, the other movie, Hooper. Which, which has is, Robert Klein playing kind of like Peter Bogdanovich, right? Or yeah, like, yeah. It's a fake sort of like version yeah. of that. That's really funny. That's another movie about making movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hooper's great. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. Love Hooper. Yeah. Uh, Brian Keith is his drunk dad. Oh, shit. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, he's funny. So, uh, yeah, starting over, it's, I just love the, uh, I just love the musical humor. It's, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, like, that's another thing we've talked about a lot is just movies with funny songs. Like, uh, the Smile obviously <laughs> had the American Girl song that Michael Ritchie wrote the lyrics to. Yeah, that was I, a great song. I will always get a kick out of, like, music in movies when it's funny and when it's, like, well done. <laughs> like, I, like, I watched Dewey Cox for the 17,000th time last week, and again, it's That's one of the greatest yeah. all-time music uh, spoofs. I think you're right, yeah. it's it's It really of, is. It's like a movie that, like, single-handedly, like, put an entire genre to sleep for 15 years. And, like, get the fuck out of here, trade musical biopic. And, yes, they came back. They came back with kind of a vengeance, but they do we put them to bed for a good yeah, 10 years. Yeah, that's yeah. such a great turn, man. Yeah. Awesome, awesome film. We can do five, five movies, just five episodes on that movie. Instead of, <laughs> instead of five, you know, like, Dewey Cox is a whole other thing. Well, Candace Bergen went... Uh, Bird ends up breaking, well, Jill Clayburgh breaks up with him. Oh, Jesus. I mean, who are we kidding here? You're hung up on your ex-wife. It's one of those. I, I better just save my ass. Bye. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that you're breaking up with me? I'm going to take you home now. And I'm going to see you tomorrow night. I'm busy. You mean I can't see you because I did one dumb thing? One dumb thing! And he ends up going back to Candace Bergen because Candace Bergen has started calling him. Mm -hmm. And... um, the whole scene in their bedroom and she's singing a song. Um, and it's this this great shot too where it goes in and then out on their like like yeah, you yeah. see their bed and it's from very far away and it's just the whole action is unfolding in this one two shot of them, but it zooms in ultra, ultra slowly until it gets very close to them as they're interacting and then zooms out ultra, ultra slowly. Which was one of the most pacula y things in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, wonderful, uh, wonderful camera work. Um, and, and she, she, uh, when they get back together, she breaks up with him again because he can tell, she can tell that he's still got Joe Clayberg on his mind and she's, she's breaking up with him and she says, I wish I'd written it down. 
she says something. I was hoping it wasn't what I thought it would be. I'm finding myself and you're losing me. She's already writing a song yeah. with that line. Which, no, no, which <laughs> Dewey Cox, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, exactly. That's almost, yeah, I remember that moment too. At, and at I, these worst moments, you're yeah, like, this will make a great yeah, song. Don't you yeah. dare write a song, yeah. <laughs> I was watching with my dad this movie, starting over, and it's I didn't even make that note, but it's funny that I brought up, we brought up Dewey separately, because yeah, that is a perfect Dewey moment. They're, they're absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's so funny. Yep. Guilty as charged. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's a good movie. Um, it, the, the writing, and I want to give another shout to James L. Brooks just in the way he writes people in relationships. It's really good. Oh, the, yeah. Just the, the sort of like kind of raw, confusing like emotions that they're all feeling. And, and Bert is like obviously very vulnerable, and so is Joe Clayburgh when they're meeting each other because she just got through a major breakup. You want to go out tomorrow night? Have you been separated? One month. You want to go out tomorrow night? No. Ah, uh, look. I mean, really, you have been separated for a very short time. Marvin knows how I feel about that. I guess that's why she didn't. <sighs> anyway, it's a very intense time. I'm for not you. that intense. Well, a little intense. I'm a little intense. Right. Forget it. Look, in the old days, I'd have already been calling my girlfriends to tell them about you. So don't feel bad. In fact, I'd like it if you called me later on. How much later? Well, three, four months. You know anybody I can go out with now? Now? I feel funny waiting three or four months to call you. Oh, yes. I can see your point. It's just really wonderful acting and really wonderful writing. They, they're shopping for a sofa, and Bert has like a panic attack. Yeah, and, and um, Charles Durning shows up, and there's all these people in the store just kind of watching him. And Durning turns to him and says, "Does anyone have a Valium?" That's like the biggest joke in the movie, right? <laughs> that feels like something out of broadcast news. You know? right. Yeah, yeah, it's very. Uh, very it's a good timely. one, though. It's a, it's a good one. Yeah, it's a good one. Better than ever. I'm better than ever. You'll never go looking for anyone else. I needed some time till I found myself. And now I'm better than ever. I'll be better than ever. You wrote the song for us. We'll never say goodbye again. And what, like we pointed out uh, in the credits, one of the songs of that uh, is attributed to Candace Bergen character is sung by Stephanie Mills in the in the final credits, who also sang the song from Fleshbit. She's in the Fletch it was, movie. Uh, it was either Split Image or Fun with Dick and Jane, one of the Ted Kotcher movies. There was a Stephanie Mills billboard visible in sight. They must have been, yeah. So there she must is be. like well, she currently a... three for three on this podcast. There you Stephanie go. Mills. Welcome yeah. to Stephanie Mills podcast. The cool thing is the production credits on that that version is by uh, Matume and Lucas, who are oh, you were uh, assuming James Matume and Reggie Lucas, who both played with Miles Davis for many years, and uh, Reggie was also Madonna's first producer. Very That's cool stuff. Cool. Great. I uh, love the music stuff. So. Um,
Yeah, you should definitely watch that. I told my sister, I said, you've got to watch, just for Candace Bergen alone. Uh, yeah, she's the best part of the movie. movie. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, that's me as a huge Burt Reynolds fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She just, uh, it, 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 good for her, good for them both getting nominated. Yeah, big fan of, of, of hers and uh, everybody else involved. Great movie. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's take a short one. Kennedy and Todd Edmondson. Starting over, we're going to head over to Rollover, which is a movie that made me fall over because I fell asleep. (laughs) Probably the worst movie that has come across our podcast desk thus far, I think. Yeah, I would say that it's definitely definitely the bottom of the list. I was intrigued by it because it has uh, Jane Fonda in it. Yeah, another tally for Jane. Yeah, another Hume Cronin appearance. Another Hume. Um, More Michael Small music. Another uh, iconic facial hair leading man without his facial hair. Yeah, just there like you go. Just like Bert and now Chris Christopherson. A Razzie nominee, Chris Christopherson. I was just thinking about the illusion of safety. You know, they'll never let him live down Heaven's Gate. Like, that yeah. was his fault. You know what? That might have been, like, the same year as this, or maybe the year after. 1981 is when Rollover was. Probably right around the same time. And it's guilt by association, because yeah. uh, the whole production on that was the Michael Cimino and the studio. That was really not had anything to do with no, yeah, who I, was in it, I but everybody who's in it has just got this stain. That's Yeah, because I don't think... I actually don't think Christopherson was, like, particularly bad in this no movie. i mean yeah, yeah he was pretty uh his kind of weird casting for that character but i think he was did it yeah job. he wasn't he's always he's never been real dynamic i think it was um it was a barbara streisand who said that during a star is born he was just drunk all the time oh really yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a boozer well that that character in that movie was drunk all the time so too. that made sense yeah, but uh, i guess i guess in real life you know uh we're kind of Stuck with that, so he's a little bit wooden in this thing, but he perfectly, you know, hands it off. He's basically, not the reason that, that the movie. Has yeah, problems. basically, the story is is about um, Jane Fonda's married to um, guy named to, Charlie, to Charlie, who's a banker, and Charlie is killed, and in his office, and um, some the killer absconds with some documents that are later, you know, Got an crucial. Of, yeah. Of some import on it. Yeah, exactly. And, um, she, um, gets tangled up with Chris Christopherson because Hume Cronin, who runs uh, city national bank or whatever the some fictitious bank, name yeah. is. He's, uh, he's very concerned about this little tiny bank that's having problems in the beginning of the movie. See, and that's, he gets Chris the whole thing starts with this frame story before we even start the real story where it's, uh, Hume Cronin's bank is like tr- trying to get some leverage over Joseph Sommer's bank 
because Joseph Somers Bank is going under real fast. Right. And then so Hume hires Christofferson to like run this other bank for him. You're not gonna get a glamour boy like Hubble Smith to run a rescue operation over there. He won't touch it with a fork. He might. If the payoff is big enough. That's how he meets Jane, is trying to put the deal together with her company. Right. He convinces her to just become the chairman of the board because she's the largest stockholder. And, mm -hmm. and uh, The chemical company, I think it was, that her husband... What was it? I don't even remember. Well, yeah, that's right. He was... Uh, yeah, he... he that's right. He he ran a chemical company, but he was like the bank's biggest customer or something, yeah. or something like that. He was tangled up in this um, in this particular account, which is uh, Arab money. We were talking about how this is very uh, very timely about um, the seventies recession and oil prices and uh, you know Arab Arabophobia, however you would say you, that. You could maybe say Islamophobia. Islamophobia. Makes more sense, yeah. But it's, you know, Islamophobia sounds more like it's a religious fear. This is more like a, a fear of a geographical takeover. You know? It's right. more like a... Arabophobia yeah. somehow seems more apt for this. Yeah, and America, the government's always been involved with Arabs just because of the massive amount of wealth. It's always yeah. been about money. And religion, you know, it's just a smokescreen. Uh, but yeah, this movie has to do with getting uh, Arabs to invest in buying a uh, another chemical company in Spain, I believe it is. Yeah. And was, um, yeah. how that gets kind of, they get kind of tangled up with the with the Arabs, and they um, they discover this this particular account and where the money's been going. The bank almost crashes on uh, on a on a rollover, which hence the title of the movie. The, uh, the uh, all these euros are in a are, are oh, in some kind yeah. of some kind of instrument that's supposed to roll over either every month or every three they have months. Have to redeposit like it or something. Right, yeah. There's right. a lot of and financial that, jargon that is like a little inscrutable. What's going on? Nineteen deposits worth five million each are due, and the Saudis didn't give us disposition instructions. You got twenty-three more maturing in the next three weeks, which is two hundred and ten million altogether. We're going to have to come up with if they decide not to roll over. Two hundred and ten million—that's practically every cent we carry. That'll clean us out. They can't just let that kind of money sit without earning interest. Even the Arabs aren't that rich. So pivotal to the to the movie that, uh, like you were saying, you really liked, uh, and I liked I liked the way the movie started. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I think in in kind of a cheesy way because it's just like it's Chris Christopherson and Jane Fonda just kind of traveling and fucking and like doing all these kind of shady and glamorous business deals. Like it's fun in a guilty pleasure way, but. I think around the 45-minute mark, once you see that Hume Cronin is somehow pulling the strings with these, like, kind of very stereotypical and, and like, vaguely menacing Arabs. Right. They just say Arabs. Yeah, it kind of, def it kind of takes the oxygen it out makes, of it. It makes it... Yeah, it was like a, a movie that was fun and almost, like... Yeah, it, it, it took the oxygen out of it. Like, yeah. It, it wasn't, like, a guilty pleasure anymore. It was just kind of a bummer. Yeah, there you go, and and uh, that's interesting too because like we were saying about um, about Clute, you know who the bad guy is yeah. in the middle of the movie, and it, it created so much tension, and so uh, brought out such great performances. And this movie, when that happens, and you find out who the bad guy is, it's just kind of like, oh, because yeah, it's like you realize that there was actually like something else kind of going on that, like the the Arab. Shadowy Arab of it all is not really playing in the first forty minutes of the movie. No, that at doesn't all. really. Ha yeah, 
it, it almost feels like you've got Bob Gunton, the warden from the Shawshank Redemption, in some heavy-duty brown face as, like, the Arab's, like, agent in New York. And once he shows up, and then once you see him with Hugh Cronin on the boat, it's kind of... It's just a real deflationary moment. It's yeah, weird to yeah. Say. The movie just and gets it, bad fast. Unfortunately, it just kind of goes downhill from there. Um, you know the um, the romance angle. You can tell. Uh, you can tell Jane Fonda likes making out with Chris Christopherson. Yeah, right. you know, no, put, who's I, still in good shape. I wrote long, boring sex scene. Sad exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> I love Jane Fonda, but yeah, it's just it's just a bomb. Like, Hume Cronin giving this speech too, and it just really bugs me. It sort of feels like it, it's the Ned Beatty speech from Network, but in a totally like misappropriated context. Yeah, I, I just feels. money, capital, has a life of its own. It's a force of nature, like gravity, like the oceans. It flows where it wants to flow. This whole thing with the Arabs and gold is inevitable. We're just going with the tide. The Arabs have taken billions of dollars out of this country, and now they must put it back. It is ebb and flow, tidal gravity. It is ecological balance. You know, when you've got a guy who's manipulating a system, it's, a natural it's thing. like I'm the smartest guy in the room, and he and he's he's. He, he's trying to make the argument that money is like a natural force, which is horseshit. Yeah, it's just completely made up. And the whole sort of like ultimate framing of it is, you know, what I was doing would have been fine. It wasn't me who fucked it up. It wasn't this whole rotten system. It was those Arabs who got too greedy. Yeah, it was exactly. those, those others, those outside problems. Yeah, classic yeah. thing of like. Let's look away from our own complicity and blame an outsider. And like, I just classic. felt that just made me feel like, yeah. oh, God. There are billions coming in on a regular basis from Arab and OPEC accounts you control in at least 15 other banks. You're moving the Arabs into gold, you're taking them out of the dollar. Well, that isn't a crime. It isn't against the law. It isn't even a conspiracy. Just a routine banking operation. And. If we didn't handle it, they'd find a lot of other people who would. God damn it, Max, you don't just do this on your own. You go to the control of the currency, the Federal Reserve Board, the Secretary of the Treasury. You call the president, for Christ's sake. And start a real panic? Have you ever seen anyone in government who could keep his mouth shut about anything for five minutes? Go ahead, call the Treasury. Call the controller. But if you do, I'll tell you what's going to happen. When the Arabs learn that word of what they've been doing is out, they may panic, move a big chunk of funds too fast or the wrong way, really destabilize the monetary markets. Then the dollar will collapse. It really like felt like the movie didn't, it, I don't know, it just kind of like, it felt right wing. It felt reactionary, that ending. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. See, the, Hume Cronin is actually, you know, it's natural, but it's, these other outside agents got too greedy. It also is absurd that um, that that the premise that oh, if you piss off the Arab financial world in their money and they pull all their money out of every American bank and the whole thing collapses and we were talking about the great the great stock footage from Parallax View in this in this uh, testing montage he's got some great riot footage like all over the mm -hmm. world that he uses very effectively at the end of the movie. And what did I say to you when I, when I texted you? I said, this movie I would not recommend. It has a bunch of beautiful Luma crane shots in it. 
but and it's very opulent. It's a very opulent world again. With I, giant glass buildings and you who know. did the cinematography on it? I actually wanted to see. Is it another Willis? Because oh, it's uh, Rotuno. Uh, it's um, Giuseppe Rotuno. Okay, that's yeah. There's one, a couple of shots I did actually. Write that down. Like, there's one shot, I thought, I actually was thinking it was Willis again because of the shadow in it. There's one where, uh, like, Chris Christopherson is hiding in Hume Cronin's office where he's, like, mm. trying to hear, like, yeah. get some information. He's trying to print a whole... And Hume and the other guy walk in and switch the light, and, like, immediately Chris Christopherson is in shadows and the, uh, the rest of the light is, room is illuminated. Mm -hmm. I thought that was, like, a really cool, like, Pacula sort of doing his thing, you know, and, and, like, creating a cool shot. Yeah. And also right before that, when Hume Cronin and the other guy were walking towards the office, before they walked into Chris Christopherson, there's these huge kind of glass blocks on the wall, like, taking up the whole frame. And it's mm -hmm. another one of those, like, weird, like, modern architectural monoliths that just stand for authority and, and like are unsettling Money, yeah, and yeah, weird yeah, and yeah, yeah. that show up all over Bacula. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. And we've right. talked about it several times. That's a good yeah. point. In fact that was the most that was the most suspenseful part of the yeah, movie. It, was. it actually was. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. otherwise, I mean, like I said here, let's, let's just cut to the chase. So Jane Fonda collapsed the world's economies but love prevails. That's yeah, the way that's I it. wrapped it. The end movie. of the day. How yeah, yeah it's about right. And, uh, I found the I found the ending very kind of flat and and uh, just like really it couldn't it couldn't have it just couldn't have got I guess you just can't make financial murder more interesting than yeah, that it's it as got, good as it's gonna get it, it would have been better without the murder mystery if it was just like you know they were these let's say her husband just happened to die and that she was like a widow with money and she meets this wild card financial agent and they fucking you know go to town and screw over all the banks. Like, that sounds fun. That sounds but that's better. A, that's a funny thing. You should say that because uh, I remember a friend of mine who, who read uh, the book The Shining, which I never read the book, but I've seen the movie, The Kubrick Shining, a million times. And he said, you know, in the book, he said, nobody gets killed. Hmm. And I'm like, wow. So that's a... That's a kind of a standard plot point. Murder is right. Is okay. Here, these people are evil. It has, so now it's you know a little it, bit like understood. That yeah, the murder's gonna happen. Yeah, it, it delineates the good the, from the bad. The thing that's like you know probably on a dispassionate level, the worst kind of like most objectively bad thing that can happen to a person is somehow in storytelling kind of trite. <laughs> it's it's weird to say that, but uh, it is. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's fun. when you talked about The Shining, this is a tangent, but it's peculiar related. You talked about how. You know, the Kubrick version differs from the actual book by Stephen King. Alan Pecula and Dick Cavett were talking about this idea that they both were kind of had and were, were passing around, but I don't think it's ever happened where you take a short story, not, probably not a full novel because it would be too long, but just a short story and you give it to three different filmmakers and they make an anthology out of it. Like, I think he said, like, what if it was uh, you, Pecula, Fellini, and Robert Altman do a. Uh, all adapt a short story, and that's one movie. Great idea, yeah. no, but I don't would know if anybody's cool. done that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, but that would have been yeah. a neat thing. Yeah, it would have been. 
Still could be. I mean, you yeah. know, that's not out of the question. That's funny. We watched, uh, well, I made you watch Toby Dammit, which was part of right, a trilogy, yeah. an Italian mm-hmm. trilogy, and the Italian directors were into doing that. Well, that's why, while. yeah, that's, I think, why Kevin brought up Fellini. Another great, movie. yeah, another great one is Boccaccio 70, which I love because Rami Schneider's in it, but oh, I, don't, yeah. I don't really remember the movie. Toby but again, Dammit it's was really good. Yeah. yeah. It reminded me of all that jazz a lot. Yeah. I was getting yeah. some old, big, all that jazz vibes. Yeah. The Fellini aspect, he just blows the other two stories out of the way. That's why. Has it standing alone? But anyway, uh, yeah. Needless to say, rollover. We can't really recommend it. So you know, uh, I mean, if you like Jane Fonda, which, you like yeah. Pacula, then um, which we do. So you we know, do. that's why we. But uh, you know, there's it. a line in here. A couple of things I just wanted to talk about before we finally roll it over to the end. Um, there's a line that Chris Christopherson says to Joseph Sommer that I just specifically wrote down uh, when Joseph Sommer says, "You're acting like this is a game." And Chris Christopherson says, That's exactly what it is. You keep talking about a system, Roy. That's your problem. You can't beat the system, but you can win a game. And my note, I wrote that line down, and my note is, Profound or stupid, question mark. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. That's totally fair. Totally fair. Yes. Well, we were going to talk about Pacula's other films. Yeah, Uh, let's pull that up real um, quick. You know, um, Initially, when we were going to do five films from him, one of his other more famous movies is Sophie's Choice. Right, yeah. Um, and we decided not to do that or just by... I think because Rollover just seems so strange. And like a little and bit of a closer, bizarre Yeah, anomaly. it's closer to the era that we're kind of stuck in. And it's too. also like almost like could have in like a different world been a fourth paranoia movie. Like if, it, if, if Rollover it could have been good, it could have been a, a paranoia quadrilogy. Right, right. Um, but it's 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 just not quite anything other it's than some, uh, some other stuff he's made uh, as well too. Just um, what were you gonna say? He said not quite anything, but yeah. Oh no, yeah, it's a, a just not was, not a good movie. Yeah, it's it's not a great movie. Um, I think I have two and a half on Letterboxd. Uh, so, but this is what I was trying to talk about. We didn't mention this at the beginning, but before he even directed anything, uh, Pecula produced like six or seven movies for Bob Mulligan, including To Kill a Mockingbird and Fear Strikes Out and Up the Down Staircase and some other stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so he was already a, a Academy Award winning producer for To Kill a Mockingbird before he even started directing. Uh, his first movie before Clute even was a movie called The Sterile Cuckoo with Liza Minnelli. Have you ever seen that? I remember that. I have seen that. that in good? fact, I'm looking at his early movies. Love of the yeah, Proper Stranger is Warren Beatty. Inside Daisy Clover is Robert Redford. Oh, there you go. Yeah, both Which with Natalie perfect. Wood. Perfect, yeah. yeah. Oh, great. Comes a Horseman is a movie he made in 1978 with Jane Fonda, Jason Robards. Probably uh, something that is good. I, I want to see this. I did see that, I, and I honestly I don't remember this. it. Yeah, it looks like a Western drama with Jane, James Conn, Jason Robards, and Richard Farnsworth. 1940s, about two ranchers whose operation is threatened by economic hardship and dreams of a land baron. Mm. Sounds pretty good. Sounds like yeah. a classic, like classic uh, western, uh, sort of a uh, classic, yeah, classic western American story. Yeah. Classic sort of a power putting their foot on the little guy type story that we always find ourselves talking about. Well, thank God he made Sophie's Choice a year after Rollover because uh, he had Starting Over and then Rollover and then Sophie's Choice <laughs> and and uh, Rollover could be safely ignored between those two yeah. easily. A movie um, that we also just. Fluked over real quick. Love and Pain and the whole damn thing. I don't know. That he made in nineteen seventy three. Maggie Smith and Timothy Bottoms. Yeah. Well, he said on that Cavett interview after his first couple movies, the 
Clute and the Sarah Cuckoo and this other Love and Pain, he was thought of as like a woman's director. And then like from there, he made these three. Uh, he made movies like really male focused, or in All the President's Men and Parallax View. There's barely yeah. any women in those movies. Yeah, even starting over is really. Star- yeah, like right. I mean, starting over has some great female performances, but yeah, it's very focused on Bird. Right. Yeah. So I don't know, kind of just a, an interesting thing. How his, that is interesting. He had, had this other reputation first, and then uh, so yeah, we did Sophie's Choice. After Sophie's Choice, he did Dream Lover, which is not something I've seen. Uh, no, Orphans not, uh, after that with Albert Finney, which I want to see, but I'm not. I'm a not big yeah. Albert Finney fan. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's good. And somebody else was in there, too, I think, that he said. Let's see. Albert Finney and who was the other? Matthew Modine is the other Modine, guy. Modine, yeah. Okay, gotcha. uh, Pacula, I read, Modine came into audition, and he had shaved his head, and he was like six... Six four or six seven. He said he was oh, just really? very imposing, I didn't know that. and um, and um, he was kind of ready. He seemed to be really ready for the role, so that was cool. Cool. Yeah, what's Dream Lover? I don't know. It's not the Bobby Darren song. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, Christy McNichol, Ben Masters, and Joseph Colt. Yeah, it isn't until the it isn't until the nineties that um, he did anything. That anybody that is like memorable. right that anybody right. would would know. Presumed innocent, I know, was a Harrison Ford movie that I don't know. You know what? That's supposed to be good. That's um, adopted from a Scott Turow novel, mm-hmm. and it's got Brian Dennehy, Raul Julia, Bonnie Bedelia. Yeah, I heard that was really pretty good, good cast. Actually, yeah. yeah, and Sidney Pollack, I think, was one of the producers of it. There you go. But it's it's got a good reputation. It's one I'd like to see. Consenting adults, something I don't know much about. Kevin Klein movie, and then the Pelican Brief, which is sort of like. The decaf version of a 70s Pacula movie, right? It's like a <laughs> yeah. conspiracy thriller, but ultimately kind of a trifle. Uh, last movie there is The Devil's Own, Brad Pitt and Harrison Ford, which I've not seen. And uh, I read about it. that, and Brad Pitt threatened to leave the film because he said the script that he read when he agreed to do the movie was not the script that they were shooting. And I don't know, it was a big He does an Irish accent in the movie, Pitt does, I know, because mm. it's about the IRA. Mm. Uh, that's about all I know about it. Yeah, and here's then, another Harrison Ford. Yeah. And then we're soon after that, 97, um, that was, would have been, he died right the year after that in a car crash. Uh, so that, age 70. Um, mm. Yeah, R.I.P. Alan Kula. Yeah, he's a mm. good director. and a Wonderful. Wonderful director. Career cut, I mean, he, he was 70 years old, so I don't know how many more movies he would have made, but... Presumably cut a little bit short. You might add a few more great movies in him. Who knows? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it's possible. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, quite, the, quite the career, though. Yeah, I would say. Um, so up next, we are going to do, you know, we're doing the thing where we link it together from the last. And we're thinking about, well, we decided on doing Sidney Pollack. Uh, and mm. Because Jane Fonda is in They Shoot Horses, don't they? And then also um, Redford, too, is in one of the movies. Three Days of the Condor mm-hmm. is what Redford... And yeah, yeah, that's actually and that's another almost good, a Pacula-y uh, type movie. Yeah, yeah, another good 70s era. conspiracy uh, cool, cool. movie, too. Yeah. yeah, I watched that actually kind of two or three weeks ago. It's got Cliff Robertson in it, one of the all-time <laughs> stiffs. <laughs> but yeah, we'll have to watch that he, one. He, he made JFK uh, <laughs> right. uh, do a two-dimensional kind of a cardboard cutout. Yeah, it's PG1. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're looking forward to that, for yeah. sure. And we hope you are, too. All right. That's been Five Films From, Alan J. Pakula. This is Matt Kennedy. And Todd Edmondson. Bye, guys. See you.